they're live. So just now it's just kind of we all get to be quiet because Tim's going to clam up. And I can't hear Tim. No, I broke everything. Nope, that was me. I I put I was fucking muting my microphone. Motherfucker, so, so you didn't have to hear in. me. So you didn't have to hear me too anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. I'm gonna leave that like Mark being just really weirdly disappointed in. That's <laughs> and then awkward like, gap. Yeah, like oh fuck, I broke it. What did I do? <laughs> oh shit. Anyway. All right. Well, let's leave, let that be our preamble then, and we we'll welcome our dear listeners back to Dance Robot Dance. This is our 173rd episode. We have a special guest with us back this week. Uh, we have Stephen Grade, fresh off of the airing of the uh, Jeopardy tournament champions, in which he made the semifinals. So, welcome back, Stephen. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Been looking forward to this ever since they told me I was going to be in the tournament of champions. <laughs> we've been looking forward to having you back too and also with me i have mark how's it going guys and i uh, did not even fucking introduce myself i am tim i am coming to you from uh, atlanta georgia and yeah so we're going to talk definitely about steven's time on the uh, jeopardy tournament of champions a little bit later uh we don't have paul with us this week apparently he's feeling a little bit under the weather so steven has graciously agreed to fill paul's seat in the meantime so at the last possible think- second so please don't yeah. judge me too harshly <laughs> also, I think we should totally do a thing where, like, we have Steven on because he was on Tournament of Champions and then not talk about it at all. Like, let's yeah. just <laughs> be like, and that's not what you want to hear, is it? Let's yeah, you don't want to talk about Jeopardy. Yeah. Why would we have a Jeopardy? We want to hear how, what it. Steven thought about The Mandalorian. We're going to do an hour yeah, on I that. I mean, that, that is very, The Mandalorian is very much my Twitter brand, but that would be a surprise for <laughs> these 600 new followers I got this week. Like, hey, here's a podcast <laughs> where I don't talk about Jeopardy. <laughs> well, we'll start out not talking about Jeopardy anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, uh, we got to make him get, wait to get to the good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep him waiting. So to start out, go through our nerdy news for the week. Uh, what's a pretty active week? The biggest thing was the Disney Plus drop and streaming service drop and everything associated with it. So Mandalorian, the Lady in the Tramp live action movie, all the other like original content, all the archival stuff that they went put on there from Disney, from Fox, from Century, for all the Star Wars stuff, all the Marvel stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, did have a bit of a rocky start in that uh, the first day. Well, my, my story with it was like I checked, I was traveling for work, and I got to my hotel, and at like twelve thirty on Tuesday, at like twelve thirty a.m., just after it clicked over to midnight, I checked, and the app was live, and I was like. I really want to fucking watch The Mandalorian right now, but I I was responsible and I restrained myself. <laughs> Were you guys both like day one subscribers, or did you pick it up later? Or? I'm I'm holding off still till uh, okay the Marvel shows hit. Ah, also, enough. I was on the first day, like I started my trial, and like the app crashed three times on PS4. <laughs> oh, no. And then the app crashed once on Xbox, and I was like, this is apparently just not my day for new apps. So I was like, I'm. I could try Apple TV or I could just go download the Mandalorian and watch it that way. <laughs> so I thought, saw the other big story about this this week was that it's driven everybody back to piracy. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. That sounds about right. After what they did, that <laughs> launch was, that was a tech nightmare launch is what that was. this week. Yeah. It, so, so right when it launched in the middle of the night, it was fine. But then like on Tuesday during the day, it was a mess. Like there were all sorts of people having issues, get accessing the app. And Steven, did you check it on Tuesday? 
Uh, no. So the day that it dropped was actually the day of my semifinal. So <laughs> I was otherwise occupied. It was just my luck. My first time on the show, I had a couple episodes up against the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. My second time, I'm going up against the launch of Disney+. Plus. I'm just like, <laughs> apparently nobody is meant to watch me on television. Uh, so I didn't. we didn't actually start watching it until yesterday. I think oh, okay. Kristen, my wife, had watched a few, uh, been, you know, popping around here and there, seeing how it was working. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really dive in until yesterday. And I guess by then a lot of stuff was kind of worked out. Yeah, I think it was worked out by like Wednesday, pretty much. They'd got some more server capacity or something and got everything worked mm-hmm. out. I did watch uh, one episode of the uh, the new Mickey Mouse shorts that they started doing about five or six years ago that was entirely in French. But okay. it was set in France. So I'm not sure if that was intentional or if it was a glitch. <laughs> it was just it was just. <laughs> I think that show actually is intentional. I remember Paul talking about something like <laughs> okay, that. He was showing his kids. Yeah, yeah. In one of his classes or something like that. And it was something like they actually have like France, like the, they have the French voiceover people mm-hmm. do the French speaking segments, mm-hmm. but like that's what goes everywhere, I guess. I don't know. I'd have to, we'd have to ask Paul and Paul's sick. Yeah. So <laughs> that does us no good. So yeah, it was not the smoothest release ever, but it was highly anticipated. So I guess they just did not anticipate how highly it was going to be anticipated. And there were other issues with it as well, like people were complaining that the Simpsons episodes on there were cropped to the wrong aspect ratio, like the old ones that would have been in full screen were like cropped to widescreen aspect ratios. There were other like complaints about stuff that wasn't on there. Like it's like anything new. People are going to find stuff to complain about. Some of them legit, a lot of them not. But when it did work and I actually did get to watch The Mandalorian the next night. Oh, shit. That show's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tim was extremely excessive in his praise of the Mandalorian, which I was going to wait and binge. I was like, "All right, I'll check this out." And holy shit, guys, this is Star Wars worth watching. <laughs> I haven't been able to say that since fucking Rogue One. Actually, no, I like Solo, so I guess I'll give that one a look at that one a slide. But this is it was really good. This is what Star Wars just should be. This is what they yeah. should have been doing the whole time. Anyway, yeah, it's like crazy, like spaghetti western, like seedy <clears throat> underbelly kind of feel of the Star Wars universe. Um, I've only watched the first episode so far. Ooh, episode really two is excellent. Also. Yeah, I'm gonna watch the probably as soon as we finish recording. I'm gonna uh, watch the second episode as well. So, yeah, uh, Stephen, have you you've watched the Mandalorian part of it at least so far? Yes, uh, I got all caught up with uh, the first two episodes yesterday. I'm glad you told me you hadn't watched the second one yet, Tim, because I won't go into <laughs> detail on that. But I mean, ju- just from the the first scene, I was entirely hooked. I mean, that first scene is just such a mission statement for what they want this show to be. It's, yeah. it's, you know, distinctively Star Wars. You've got aliens, you've got prosthetics, you've got, you know, real, like, tactile makeup, you know, characters speaking alien languages. But then you've also got, you know, the laconic gunslinger, and you've got the scene at the bar, and you've got, you know, the guys trying to start, start shit with him, and he's just sitting there, you know, and all he wants is his drink, and, you know, he's mm-hmm. collecting bounties. I mean, it is every, you know, great Western that you've ever seen with a Star Wars coat of paint on it. And, you know, from the score, which is kind of just doing this alien oh, riff yeah. on Morricone's stuff. Yeah, the Morricone, good and the absolutely. Ugly. Yeah. It's all like, it's all of these elements just kind of thrown into a science fiction blender or a space fantasy or whatever you want to call Star Wars. Yeah. And it's very much like right out the bat exactly what it is trying to be. And the second episode only for, does that even further. I mean, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that most of the, that episode is dialogue free and what dialogue there is isn't really in English. And it's just, you know, like desert shots and like quietly, you know, making your way from point A to point B so you can, you know, complete task C and then 
make your way back and it is all it is all very 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 western it is it is a lot of fun to see the only thing i mean you can tell that it is shot on a lower budget than the movies um like there is some cgi jank in that first episode particularly with the i can't remember the the, like two-legged creatures that they're riding stuff there was some like live action cgi interaction where i was like okay i can see the seams here but it wasn't like super distracting for me yeah, it wasn't like Supergirl bad or anything like yeah. that. Like it was like I was like, for a TV show, it I was, was like, this looks as good as yeah. it looked as good as Discovery has looked. Yeah. Like I was like, this is pretty high quality CG for a TV show. Yeah. Like they're obviously spending a lot of money per episode on this thing. Yeah. And like Favs knows how to shoot and make it look good on a budget too. Like if, if Favs is involved, he knows how to kinda trick the camera real well. Yeah. So yeah. and look how much they didn't spend a lot on that first Iron Man movie and look how good that one indeed. looks. So. Yeah. And I mean spoiler alert for anybody that has not watched it yet, but Baby Yoda was super cute. Whatever. Not <laughs> yeah. baby not Yoda, I guess. <laughs> baby Yoda creature. Yeah, I can't I can never remember species? the name know. of Yoda's what is this species? species? I haven't seen the internet come up with like a cute name for that creature yet, but I I'm sure it's bound to be here sooner or later. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, no, Yoda's race and homeworld have not been named in any official media, canonical or otherwise, according to Wikipedia. Well, so I'm sure we'll... Here yeah, it comes. Exactly. Yeah, I guess it sounds like we're about to get that. So, <laughs> Yeah, so besides that, apparently Disney is, is sort of gradually correcting mistakes. There's a place where you can go and request stuff that is not already on the platform. So people are going in there and saying, like, I want this, like, random fucking, like, Disney Channel original movie and stuff. And there's probably a million requests going through for Song of the South and stuff like that. I could just go in there and request Daredevil 400 yeah. times, I think. Like, that would be a good yeah. idea. Shoot your that shot. Work. <laughs> Better than Song of the South. I mean, like, out of all the things I could be asking for, that'd be like, could you just please revive my Daredevil show yeah. for me? I don't think that's too much for them to ask or too much to ask of them. And some of the stuff that does have outdated racial stereotypes like Dumbo or Peter Pan, they are putting disclaimers on saying exactly that, you know, that there are outdated cultural representations, which is exactly the right way to handle that rather than just ignoring that it ever happened. And then the Simpsons, apparently, uh, they're going to fix the aspect ratio one, but it's going to be like 2020 before that happens. So. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> All those Simpsons episodes that I've never seen before that I need to watch in the proper aspect The other ratio. Star Wars Disney Plus news that is getting the internet into an uproar uh, has to do with a single word, McClunky. So apparently, oh, George. George, fucked, George, George, George. George fucked with the Han and Greedo cantina scene once again to make it that it's like the two of them are basically shooting at the exact same time rather than one of them shooting first and there's also a shot where Greedo says McClunky and just why why George it's just stop see it's it's funny because there was like a little while where like the internet was like man we should give George Lucas another Star Wars movie like everybody was on board with like let's bring George back now George goes back and is like remember why you hated me you remember why no I'm gonna fuck it up again I'm gonna remind (laughs) you why you hated me and yeah here we are you know he's just got to do that thing we're like, he can't get out of his own goddamn way. And the internet was turning back to him. And he's like, no, 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 fuck that. I don't want the internet. Han fucking shot second or kind of at the same time or something equally yeah. as obnoxious as just leaving yeah, it to fuck leaving, alone. Leaving, but, you know, Han being like the gray area character that, you know, shot before Greedo could get off a shot. And yeah. <sighs> it's the, film, the film has been a work in progress for 42 years now. <laughs> The longest work in progress <laughs> film of all time. Like the most successful work print ever. <laughs> yes. 
Let's see, moving on from Disney Plus, but still under the Disney umbrella, Marvel released their slate for the next couple of years, including some stuff going into 2023, but that's all untitled. So release dates for Black Widow is going to be May 1st of 2020. The Eternals, November 6, 2020, so I guess kind of a Christmassy release. February 12th, 2021 will be Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. May 7th, 2021, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. November 5th, 2021, the Jane Foster Thor, Thor Love and Thunder. Something untitled on February 18th, 2022. And we got a date for Black Panther 2, which is still two and a half years away. May 5th, 2022. Everything else after that is just like, here's some release dates, but we're not telling you what we're releasing. But, you know. Well, and, and a Spider-Man movie that's <laughs> yeah. like absolutely in there because there's the third Spider-Man yeah, movie is jammed in there somewhere because there should be a next year, I want to say. they want. Usually they ban, bash those Spider-Man yeah. movies out real fast over at Sony. Like they get, they're on a more frequent schedule than the other sequels are. So. Oh, yeah. Sony, needs that. Sony needs that boost. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. No kidding. Well, they do have PS5 coming next year, so I guess they that maybe they can hold off on Spider-Man until yeah. after that happens. But I mean, uh, Blade will slot into one of those, you know, 2022 or 2023. Ant-Man yes. 3 will slot into one of those. Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Guardians yeah, will slot into one of those. Yeah. Captain Marvel 3, which we already know is being worked on. Cap- 2. Captain Marvel 2? Yeah, Captain Marvel 2, sorry. Yeah, Captain Marvel 2. No, I was, I was thinking so far. that maybe her sequel was next year, but you know, I can't remember. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah like, oh, like like the actual yeah. third one. Oh okay, yeah. I don't know. We haven't heard anything about specifically about Captain Marvel two yeah. happening yet. Besides that, it um, is happening. So. so yeah, besides the billion dollar gross yeah. of the first one. Yeah, all the sequels are happening. It's just like a matter of kind of when they line everything up at this point and like mm-hmm. what they want to do. At this point, there's no big rush on any of this stuff, right? Like there's no impetus like oh we have to get to Thanos or something like that, and we're rebuilding yeah, at yeah. this point. So. They can kind of decide what they want to do yeah. as they go. The other big Star Wars release this week was Jedi Fallen Order, the game, you know, single player kind of uh, story based game. Mark, you played a little bit of that. What did you think of that? I've only played like the first level and it's fucking awesome. Uh, so if you are a, I think, I'm not sure if it's out on PC. I didn't see a PC release for it. And it's a LucasArts game, yeah. which usually means it would be, actually, no, it's an EA game, but it usually means there would be a PC release. But I know it's on Xbox and PS4. And I grabbed it on Xbox because 4K, and it is delightful. Like, you're going to nice. enjoy it quite a bit. So, yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll report in when I get a little bit more time with it. I just grabbed it today, so I didn't have time to spend. It's fucking hard, is like the one thing. The combat yeah. is challenging, um, which I wasn't expecting. Kind of a Dark Souls-y vibe, Ooh, which is not usually that my doesn't turn me on. thing. No, you can turn it down, so it's more like, it plays more like, like the new God of War, which is... Mm-hmm. similarly dark soulsy like it's a challenge like every encounter can be kind of a challenge but you can crank the difficulty down so i may switch difficulties yeah. to actually just play through it but yeah at first the first hour i was playing with it i was getting my like teeth kicked down my throat so i was like all right i need to practice a little bit but it looks great it plays really nice and like the overall mechanic of it like it's a very metroidvania kind of exploratory thing and it feels like star wars like it's got that pre or post original series kind of yeah. aesthetic to everything and that holds it together really nice. So I'm I'm pretty impressed with it so far, considering usually Star Wars game yeah, launches the, are the last couple have been kind nice. of uh, the last yeah. couple of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also like a return to form, having like a single player just like campaign game as opposed to some big multiplayer like either being like a Tie Fighter versus X Wing kind of idea or a like a shooter like Battlefront yeah, yeah. or whatever that one's called now. 
um, just being like a campaign with a story. Like and the like, old uh, Dark Forces and then Jedi Knight games and then Force Unleashed. Yeah. And, which are some of some of the, uh, you know, fan favorite yeah. Star Wars games. Yeah. So I think this is going to become one of those. Like, it looks great and it plays really nice. And hopefully it kind of yeah. holds up as I get to go through it. Because, like, just the first level so far, I was impressed. And I'm going to have to turn. The, but I'm like I said, I'm going to have to turn the difficulty down because I got my Jedi ass spanked hard. <laughs> so, Steven, have you played any of, like, the older Star Wars games? Uh, a few of them. I mean, I had, you know, going all the way back to the Super Nintendo, oh, yeah. I had Super Star Wars and Super oh, Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, yeah, those are, they were rough until you got like the 99 lives cheat <laughs> code, like the, yeah. uh, the hidden extra lives in that cave on one of the levels. You know, I had Shadows of the Empire at N64 launch. Yeah. I was the Battlefronts, of course. I was never a bunch of a PC gamer until recently, but now I've been like diving into Knights of the Old Republic and some like the classic PC games and uh, really, uh, you know, diving on into those and catching up on the past, you know, 15 years of Star Wars uh, video game media that I should have consumed by now, uh, but never got around to. Nice. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's always been like, if it's something Star Wars on it, chances are I'm going to buy it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just that hooked. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> nice. Well, then you'll enjoy this one because, like, if I'm not even like that big a Star Wars guy, and I'm having a blast with it. So, if you're a Star awesome. Wars guy, this is yeah. like right up your alley. In something that is right up Mark's alley, we finally got a release date. Uh, yeah, we finally got a release date for the Dwayne the Rock Johnson starring Black Adam film with some pretty awesome Jim Lee art of the Rock as. Seth Black Adam. So the date for that is December 22nd, 2021. So it's going to be a Christmas release two years from now. So I'm hey, yep. at least they're making it. There was a little while where I was betting that yeah. movie would never happen. So even after Shazam did well, I was like, I, I still don't know if that movie, the other movie is yeah. going to happen, like the one with The Rock in it. But even though they kind of showed him in there, like that is like kind of him that they use yeah, the yeah. CG model when they show Black yeah. Adam in that movie. So yeah, I was like just not convinced it wasn't gonna happen. Then all of a sudden this week it's like, hey, guess what? Date. I was like, oh yeah. All right. I mean cool. Let's see how it goes. The most interesting part for me will be how to what degree they involve Captain Marvel in it or Shazam, but I'll always call him Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Shazam, yeah. In it or because my feeling is if they do it right, he'll have a very minimal role in it. You know, it'll be primarily mm-hmm. uh, the story of, of Black Adam as like a, a political leader of Kandak and stuff like that. And those are like the best stories they've ever done with that character. So we'll see. Well, Rock likes doing those like ancient epics too. Yeah. Remember the Scorpion King? Yeah. Good times. <laughs> likes doing those. Probably not going to be super happy that I brought that up. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't bring up Hercules. Ooh. Not as bad as you would think. They just sold that movie wrong. They legit sold that movie wrong. I didn't realize it was about a con until I was like watching the movie. Like he's fuck, he's faking it the whole time. Like it's not actually about Hercules. Oh, he's yeah, just pretending yeah. or something. <laughs> At least that's what I gathered from it. Anyway, <laughs> was not still not great. <laughs> Fourth season of Rick and Marty came out, uh, or Rick and Morty, I should say. Uh, first episode. I have not watched it yet, but I definitely will. I've been traveling for work this week, so I'm behind on a couple things. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what you expect Rick and Morty to be after a three-year hiatus. The uh, the fascism joke that came up over yes. and over again was amazing. Yes. Like, I almost died. But when they, The want... first time they went to that one, I just about fell over. Well, when, it's more like when you come, like, they go back to it and he comments on, like, how it's just become the default. I was like, <laughs> yeah, good. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then before the first episode has even aired, Netflix's The Witcher series has already been renewed for a second season. So I guess that bodes well for the first season, but I still can't bring myself to care 
I'll, uh, <laughs> the, last, the, the last trailer sold me enough that I'll watch the first episode. Also, just yeah. to spite Christy. I love you, Christy, if you listen to this. <laughs> I was curious enough to watch that. If I watch The Mandalorian after I'm like, bitching about Star Wars, I think I owe her at least one episode of this Witcher thing. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> this one is in sort of maybe more hypothetical news, but Frank Miller finally regained the film and TV rights to Sin City about a year ago. And now there's buzz again that it looks like uh, Robbie Rodriguez is going to be coming back to make a TV show based on Sin City, which I think is probably how that franchise should have been handled to begin with rather than movies. Cause the movies were basically like little vignettes anyways. I would also err on the side of anything Frank Miller doing, kill it with fire these days. And I know that might be blasphemy to some people, but like speaking of fascism jokes. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah. No kidding. But at least the source material was back when he was still good. I mean, some of it, cause he's still writing those books like shit, like yeah. Sin City stuff still comes out now. So Fair. some of it and some of it got translated into a dame to kill for did you see um, that one no i did not i heard yeah real bad. some of us some of us sat through that and that was an adaptation of some of the material that was written from the same time period and it's not the material he's adapting it's the man now who is fucking crazy so yeah. i don't think that's a great idea but you know what it's not my money they're wasting yeah so <laughs> just go to town yeah Paul had talked a little bit already about his uh, apprehension regarding Pokemon Sword and Shield. Uh, it well found it, apparently. Yeah, it has now released, and the reviews are not so good. I will not go into detail on it, because I, I've never played anything more advanced than Pokemon Go. But yeah, people <laughs> not happy with that game at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> even the, it's even a jank fest, too, on top of that. I think it's not performing oh, yeah. properly. It's, uh... Yeah, from a Nintendo game is really yeah. unusual, even though it is Game Freaks, like it's not Nintendo Nintendo. I was trying to figure this out this week because we've been talking about this Pokemon a lot. I don't know what it is, right? Like, I don't know anything about it. So I went to like figure out what the actual relationship between Nintendo and Game Freak is and all this other shit, like what the Pokemon company is. Mm. I went in confused, came out more confused, went back in more confused, <laughs> came out wanting to die. So I'm like, guess what? <laughs> I'm never figuring out and i don't fucking care anymore yeah. there's three thousand pocket monsters i guess <laughs> and nintendo kind of owns the rights to stuff but can't tell them what to do and they suck at their jobs is apparently the long and short of it so there you go <laughs> baffling to me the nintendo would allow their biggest property just to kind of yeah flitter about in the fucking wind like that but hey yeah as long as Zelda doesn't get fucked up, and I still get my Metroid Prime 4. You can do whatever they want to Pokemon. Yeah. Most profitable media franchise of all time, you'd think they'd be taking better care of it. I, that is exactly the point I was making to Paul while we were talking about it this week, as the reviews for this game came out, and were like, whoo boy. I thought, I was expecting like the opposite. I was expecting the Star Wars game to get kind of pooped on, and then like this one to be like, oh, it, it's actually not bad. We're giving it an 8 or a 9. and then But in complete inverse star wars came out to nines and this one's like hey have fun with your five game yeah <laughs> like way to launch your yeah. biggest franchise on your now main platform kids yeah. like you have it's one for the fans, of not game. for the critics well no that's the thing the fans are more pissed <laughs> off than the, the fans are super pissed off so they got a big mess to clean up yeah. and guess what not my problem because i don't play pokemon <laughs> yes i've got my game boy color i've got Pokemon Red and Blue and Yellow, and I'm all set. Oh, you'd be my brother's favorite right yeah. there. It's better to get to actually chat with Paul again. Very last thing that I had is that we finally got confirmation that Bill Murray will be returning as Peter Venkman in the third Ghostbusters movie. I mean, we'd been going back and forth, and, and there'd been rumors and stuff about it, but now we actually know, and I'm happy. 
Uh, I'm glad he's yeah. in there. I just hope he, you know, commits to it as opposed to you know, doing a Bill no, Murray. He doesn't ever. I don't think he like phones it in anymore. Like anything that he actually is in, he'll like commit to. I saw Ghostbusters 2016. Fair. I know what a phoned in, <laughs> you know, performance from Bill Murray looks like. So fair. And that's in living memory. <laughs> that's about the only one I can think of where he's really like phoned oh, yeah. it in, though. Yeah, yeah. Hey man, I yeah, love these Bill days Murray. he's so much more, like Wes Anderson or you know popping up in something like Zombieland, just a fun little cameo. Yeah. Like he he takes good enough care of what he's going to do. I feel like that generally when he's interested, he's going to do it right. Ghostbusters seemed like something he maybe got hamstrung into doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, just because all the rest of them were doing their their little bits for it, so they dragged him along for that one. But hopefully, if if he's you know committing to it as Bankman, that he'll really you know he'll give it a go. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. That was everything I had. Did either of you guys have anything that happened this week that I missed? Mm, negative. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's most of the rest of the episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> besides, yeah, besides the uh, the Jeopardy news. All right. Well, with that, we can move on to our Geek of the Week, which is where we discuss the nerdiest things we've done in the last week or so. So let's go first to our special guest star, Stephen. What was the nerdiest thing you did in the last week? I mean, other than answering trivia questions on a television audience of about 10 to 12 million people, not that much. <laughs> I think that counts. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, that's basically been my entire life for the past uh, eight months or so. Uh, so I guess for me, being geeky was actually sitting down and like getting caught up on Rick and Morty and getting caught up, caught up on Watchmen. And Oh man, Watchmen's so good. Yeah, so just like actually getting to be my usual geeky, nerdy self again is about as nerdy as, as I can be at the moment. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Mark, how about you? I watched both episodes of Mandalorian. So, like, I've been watching a lot of TV, catching up, trying to keep up with all this new stuff that's happening. But, like, The Mandalorian, I really recommend it. I, like, I should probably just save this for geek cred and tell everybody to go watch <laughs> it then. And I can do it again. But, like, I just sat down and watched the two episodes of The Mandalorian, I guess must have been a couple days ago, when Tim told me to watch them anyway. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Holy shit, they made a Star Wars thing that I don't hate. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's been since Rogue One. Well, no, I don't know. It's been a while. I've been real, like hit or miss on the Star Wars stuff since it kind of reappeared. I like I was super glowing on Rogue One and then like Solo I liked, but then I rewatched it and was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Not didn't hold together as nicely as I thought it did. But yeah, this is like Star Wars that I wanted. Yeah. And I didn't even know I wanted it anymore because I was kind of burnt out on the whole thing. Star Wars but, with no Jedi. Yeah, no Jedi, no Sith, bar- like barely any mention of the Empire. Yeah. Everything's just kind of like scumbags dealing with scumbags inside a scumland. And I'm like, this is and Warner Herzog Star Wars for some fucking reason. Yeah, for, yeah, and Warner <laughs> Herzog for some fucking And Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. I was like, wait, what the fuck's this about? And Brian Posehn <laughs> as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Either way, show's fucking brilliant. And I was like, all right. I should have never doubted John Favreau. I know he's been making those goofy live action or I quote quote unquote CG yeah, yeah, remakes yeah. of the Fav, Disney movies yeah, lately more Lion than anything King else. But like you can't discount Favs when he gets to do something he's really into doing and you could tell that like there's a lot of passion going into this project and it's yeah. fucking working because it's really good. So yeah. that's my geek of the you week. Can, that. Yeah, you can see Favs touches, you can also see Dave Filoni's touches as well in it for yeah. sure. So Yeah. yeah. So I'm excited that they got something going that's, you know, for the first Disney or first Star Wars live action series. Well, it just bodes well for like all the stuff they're doing on Disney Plus. You know what I mean? Like if this is the quality we're getting from Star Wars, like what are we going to get from Marvel? Yeah, for sure. So that's exciting for me. And that's got that's coming soon. Like Winter Soldier is like December. So yep. 
Yeah. Or, or something like and that. And this is sort of a, an aside, but I was telling Mark this week that uh, uh, one of my friends, Celia, who does a lot of costuming work on like high-end productions in Georgia, is currently working on, on Captain America and the Winter Soldier. And I got to see some pictures of Bucky's costume, and it looks pretty fucking sick. And she's been working on Bucky's <laughs> costume. <laughs> Ask her if she can steal me Bucky's arm. <laughs> Definitely. I'm sure they just got some extra ones of those lying around. I'm excited for that show. That's yeah. cool. My Geek of the Week is is not necessarily Mandalorian specifically, but Disney Plus in general. Uh, I, you know, Mandalorian is the only thing I've watched on it so far, but I did also spend a good amount of time. Basically, I had Mandalorian showing on my tablet because I was out of town, so I wasn't able to like, watch it on TV yet. I, I'm going to go back and watch it on like big screen. While at the same time, I had the app open on my phone, like going through and adding a bunch of shit to my watch list. Like I was looking for like all there's all kinds of like Disney Park stuff on there. Like there's an Imagineering series. There's like the world according to Jeff Goldblum, which is just Jeff Goldblum going around and like exploring things that he's interested in and like being amazed by them. And in the most like Jeff Goldblum way possible. And so like, how did he how did he get Disney to pay? For his own like magic mushroom <laughs> farm or whatever, because that's what I assume he does, right? Like he's. I think maybe they right. they got some editorial control over <laughs> over what the topics of the episodes were. It's just like, oh, we're going to just look at dispensaries. Yeah. I'm going to take a bunch of edibles and wander around. Like that actually kind of sounds like what Jeff Goldblum <laughs> does these days. So and uh, right. I put like yeah, the old '90s X Men and Spider Man series on there on my watch list and everything. So. I've got a lot of a lot of watching to do on Disney Plus for sure. And I like that there's a lot of bonus content on the app as well. Like they've got like deleted scenes and like for like the Star Wars movies, they've got little featurettes and shit like that attached to them, which is nice and something that I've been missing from things like Netflix and other streaming services. So, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we can move on to our meat of the episode. Meat in the form of a question. What is meat? What is meat? So, yeah, we've got Steven back with us. Uh, fresh off, as we're recording this, the finale of the Tournament of Champions aired just last night. And we're going to talk to Steven about his experience with the Tournament of Champions. I, I want kind of want to do this somewhat chronologically. And to start out with, I saw sort of before all this happened, you had written a couple of like Reddit posts uh, that got shared on Facebook about what Jeopardy has meant to you and what sort of your experience has meant to you. Do you want to maybe share a little bit of that with our listeners? Yeah. So um, I had I had tried to stay kind of off of social media and off of Reddit for a while while I was studying just because I know what a time suck it is. <laughs> and then after the tournament taped, I still kind of wanted to, you know, keep a low profile because I knew something that everybody else didn't. And I was extremely extremely legally forbidden <laughs> from giving any information away but as the tournament got closer and as they started promoting it i kind of like you know stepped back into the waters and dipped my toe back in there and the the jeopardy reddit community is by and large like one of the more wholesome communities you will find on the internet as wholesome as you get on reddit anyway yeah and it, yeah and reddit well the mods they're like they're all big fans and they do a very very good job of like keeping a tight leash on folks and they all know that a lot of former players hang out mm-hmm. there so it's like on one side, it's like they don't they want to make sure that like nobody's being, you know, unnecessarily abusive to people who like could be reading that. But on the other hand, like a lot of people get kind of starstruck. Like this is somebody who like you watched on TV for a week or two and now they're here just like hanging out with you. So that in itself kind of makes for like a really nice community. So a few weeks ago, somebody posted like how has Jeopardy impacted your mm-hmm. life? 
And it was getting like some good responses, just like, you know, it inspired me to study this and, you know, it made me want to learn more. And I, I kind of wanted to just slide in there with a snarky joke for like my first post in, you know, eight months and just be like checks, bank account smiles and, <laughs> and that'd be the end of it. But that like, it felt like an opportunity to like start expressing what the show has meant to me, because now that my time on the show is in all likelihood over I've been really reflective about how much it's meant to me and how much it changed my life even before I got on the show. So I just started talking about how it was so different being in elementary school and middle school and having this show on television that is all about celebrating knowledge and celebrating, you know, fact and truth and, you know, nerdiness and being a geek and seeing all these people up there who aren't just being rewarded for their intelligence, but who are, you know, wowing a national audience five nights a week, mm -hmm. just with how much they know and like these, the place that their interests have been able to bring them. That really meant a lot to me as a kid, because like I was an athlete, but I was a swimmer. So that didn't really count. <laughs> it wasn't one of those things, like the stuff that I was best at wasn't really the stuff that makes you popular as a kid or that you really see like, you know, represented on television, I suppose. Like you watch football, you watch baseball, you watch, you know, athletics, you watch people that can do these amazing feats of strength and athleticism. But here's something people doing amazing feats of intelligence. And I really saw myself in the show and it really enabled me to pursue my interests to the degree that I wanted to pursue them. I didn't need to feel ashamed about, you know, wanting to just sit around on a Friday night and read. I was able to just do that because I saw like, no, this is what these people who I'm watching on TV and admiring, like that's something that they would do. And if it's good enough for them and it can take them this far and turn them into this, these type of people, why wouldn't I want to do that? Like, why wouldn't I want to allow myself to be myself. I'm seeing myself on TV. I can be that kind of person too. So it really, like, I think the way that I closed the, the little mini essay that I wrote, if I had known Jeopardy was going to share it all over Facebook and Twitter, I would have written even more. <laughs> but I wrote that some people say that Star Trek made them want to be a scientist or that Indiana Jones made them want to be an archaeologist. Jeopardy was what made me want to be myself. And I feel like even before I appeared on the show, that was a huge, huge gift that the show had given me uh, before the checks had cleared. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I can totally sympathize, you know, with that, you know, feeling like I was a kid when it was not cool to be nerdy. And so, yeah, I can definitely sympathize with the pressure of like, wanting to fit in with what the other cool kids thought were cool rather than, you know, whatever it is, trivia, sci-fi, fantasy, all that kind of stuff. So nice. So getting into the filming week, uh, or maybe even the, the lead up to I know this is a pretty open-ended question, but how is the Tournament of Champions different than your regular season play? Whether you want to talk about, you know, the general logistical sense, how you prepared for it differently, mindsets, wagering strategies, that kind of thing. Well, the first thing that was different about it was I knew it was coming. When the first time that I was on, I had about two or three weeks notice. Like I knew that it was a possibility, but it didn't become real until right before I was getting on the show. So I didn't have that much time to really, you know, mentally and intellectually prepare for it. I, I had a lot of cramming to do in a very short amount of time. This time, as soon as I won my fifth game, I basically knew that I was coming back. It wasn't guaranteed. It wasn't official, but I would have been the first five game winner in the history of the show not to qualify for a tournament mm -hmm. champion. So I felt pretty confident. So, you know, as soon as I got off the plane, I started, you know, preparing to go back on the show. You know, that was the beginning of February, so I had more than seven months to really hit the books and prepare myself for it. The other thing that was different was the first time on the show, they don't announce 
who's going to be on it until about a week or two in advance before the episodes air. Mm -hmm. And traditionally with the Tournament of Champions, they don't really start marketing it until a few weeks out. This time they announced in July who was going to be on it, which meant that for four months I was kind of not... Yeah, like, well, it wasn't just that I knew for sure. It was that the internet knew for sure. Uh, so, like, I and all of my friends and family knew for sure because my first time on the show, I didn't tell anybody I had done it until they started promoting me, like, on local TV and on their website. This time around, I was hoping to do that again and just maintain a low profile. And then I woke up one morning to a, a text message from someone like, hey, congrats on the Tournament of Champions with a link to this announcement video. And I was just like, oh, okay, I guess we're doing this then. <laughs> So that that kind of caught me off guard and took me by surprise and made me, you know, a little bit more of a public figure a little bit earlier than I was anticipating. But that just, you know, that only changed kind of perception of me. Like for me, it was still, I had already known that I was in, I had already known when we were taping it, I had already known, you know, how much studying I wanted to do and what my style of preparation was going to look like. That just, you know, it gave me... I guess a little bit more motivation, if anything, because if I didn't do well, there was no hiding it. Everybody already knew that I was going back out, so I wouldn't be able to soft play at this time. So I just had to, you know, redouble my efforts and hit the flashcards even harder. (laughs) So getting out there, I don't know if it was this way for everybody else, but I was honestly a whole lot more relaxed this time around. The first time I was back there, like I was a nervous wreck. I was I was shaking in the green room. I was just like uncontrollably and my hands wouldn't stop shaking. When taping ended each day, I had been so tense the whole time that like my body was physically sore. Like I ached all over just from being so uptight all the time. But this time, I don't know if it was that I had already kind of accomplished something pretty special in terms of Jeopardy. Or if it was that I kind of had gotten to know all of the people who I was there with from watching their episodes and from, you know, shooting each other congratulatory uh, messages on Twitter or on Facebook uh, when we, when like somebody new would qualify. But I felt like it was just like a much more relaxed, much more fun experience all the way around for me. Like I was there, you know, cracking jokes and being loose in the green room and, you know, watching Shaun of the Dead and Indiana Jones and playing (laughs) off-brain Jenga instead of, you know, pacing around like a nervous wreck. So for me, that part of it was just a a whole, whole, you know, much better experience. Uh, We had, before the tournament taped, we had a whole day of like media day, uh, interviews, filming commercials. So it was another day of us just all, you know, hanging out and relaxing. And that day there was no pressure whatsoever because we were all just there kind of fulfilling our media duties. So we just got to sit around and hang out and chat and get to know each other a bit better without, you know, any of the the Jeopardy stuff kind of hovering over our heads. It was just like a few days at summer camp. Uh, Even after the tournament started, we're just sitting there, you know, most of us just kind of goofing off in the green room, having fun. And then occasionally they would march three of us out on the stage to go play the game. But that was almost an afterthought uh, once it reached a certain point. You know, I'm sure that there were some people in there who felt a little bit differently. But for me, it was like, I still had a lot that I wanted to achieve while we were out there filming the tournament. But I think it was the the mix of personalities and the fact that we had all done it before and this was kind of a familiar situation for all of us that allowed me to really enjoy and appreciate the act of just being there as opposed to really only enjoying and appreciating how well I did on the show. Yeah. And the, the one thing that going a little more, bit more into gameplay that I hadn't realized until you really pointed it out is that like wagering strategy and stuff like that for daily doubles for final jeopardies would be very different in this case because of how they pick wild cards for the quarterfinal or the semifinal mm-hmm. rounds because basically the dollar amounts mean virtually nothing this time except who wins, right? 
Right. Yeah. Normally on Jeopardy, the winner, whatever you earn at the end of the show, that like as soon as you win your episode, that becomes a dollar amount. Like you have won that many dollars. In the Tournament of Champions, barring some pretty extraordinary circumstances, all of the winnings are preset. So how much you earn on the show doesn't really matter. So it's more like it's more points than anything the second time around. Mm -hmm. But more than anything else, the quarterfinals of a Jeopardy tournament are different from any other game on the show. Because any other time on the show, there can only be one winner. There's going to be three people come in, and the one person at the end with the most money is the one person who will come back the next day. Now, in the tournaments, they have a five quarterfinal matches, three people in each. And the five winners of each quarterfinal are guaranteed automatic places in the semifinals. But then to fill out the field, they take the next four highest non-winners. Mm -hmm. So that's a way to ensure that, you know, just because one person ran into a juggernaut, if they racked up a high score on their own, they didn't end up not making it just because they had the misfortune of being against somebody who got a great score. Like, for example, in my game, I ended up with a score that would have won one of the other games, but I came in second place. But because I scored a high enough point score, I qualified as a wild card and was able to move on to the second round. But because of that, it isn't really always about what your opponents have. It's about what number do you want to hit that you think will qualify you for the second round. So you'll see people like get to a certain score and bet nothing on final jeopardy and allow someone to pass them just because they're confident that they're already going to make it and they don't need to, to run that risk. And and you don't get to watch any of the other taping. So like you only see your own episode, so you don't know what number that is. You just have to kind of guess based on historical amounts that people have qualified for the semifinals in, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I was on, I was, I had the, depending on how you look at it, the fortune or the misfortune of being on the last game of the day. So I was stuck in the green room uh, the entire day while everybody else went out and played. But if I, on a normal game of Jeopardy, uh, all the contestants who haven't gone yet are watching the games that are being played because it really doesn't matter what you see. Like, yeah, maybe you can pick up a little bit on who's good on the buzzer or how, you know, somebody's style of play or what categories they look to be strong on. But there's not really too much you can see that'll affect your game. The difference in the tournaments are that if I were in the audience and I see that nobody has scored over $5,000 and I'm in the last game, I can get to 5,001 and just shut just it down. Quit. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that gives, that would give somebody going later a huge advantage. So the way that they fix that is instead of allowing us to sit in the audience and watch, if you haven't gone yet, you're in the green room, they take your phones, you have no means of communicating with anybody outside of that room. And you're just sitting there, you know, watching Jeopardy staffers do card tricks and you're playing <laughs> off brand Jenga. Uh, which I highly recommend. Off-brand Jenga, the pieces are not even, and they've got kind of weird jagged edges. <laughs> so the whole thing is teetering from minute it's one. It's got ex- extra level of difficulty. Yeah, that is Jeopardy for the pros. <laughs> <laughs> or Jeopardy for the pros. Jenga for the pros. <laughs> so my question is, Jeopardy, like the longest-running game show of all time, tons of millions of dollars, they can't even afford real fucking Jenga? <laughs> I was told that actually the Jenga was bought by one of the uh, teenage contestants a couple years ago and that they just brought it in on their own because they got so bored on the first day of a tournament. That makes more sense. Uh, don't, don't quote me on that, but I, I feel like there's like a 14-year-old somewhere who's to blame for that. <laughs> or maybe it's a 14-year-old who got sick of being way too good at regular Jenga and was like, no, I want to do it the hard way. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's hard mode time, like challenge time, right? Yeah, all right. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure that wasn't just like... Like Alex Rebecca cheating yeah. out or something like that. No, no, like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, uh, no, nobody gets real Jenga in my... We get to play real Jeopardy here. Yeah, only Nothing I else. get real Jenga. Yeah, only <laughs> he gets real... Yeah, exactly, right? 
All right. Uh, but no, so so that whole day, those of us, you know, like three people went out for the first game and the other 13 of us that were backstage started watching Shaun of the Dead and, what you know, playing cards and playing Jenga. Then three more go out and there's 10 more of us there and they start playing, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and the rest of us are just kind of hanging around. And then three more go out and they bring in a lunch. So like we we had no reason to ever leave that room. So by the end of it, it was just me and the two guys who I was against and the alternate who was out there. And we were just like watching the first half hour of planes, trains, and automobiles. And we're like, I guess this is all we can do right now. Everybody else is, you know, separated from us because once you go, they don't let you back in the green room. So they can't give us any information. So you play your game and then you go in the audience and then they bring three more out of the green room who are totally in the dark. So what you can do, you know, there are very extensive Jeopardy fan sites out there, uh, one of which the JeopardyFan.com, who I think I mentioned last time. Yeah, we definitely talked about them last time. Yeah, just a great job, you know, reviewing the episodes and keeping track of players and scores and questions. But he did a calculation on historically, like, what score you have, what percent chance of making it as a wild card. So I was able to look at that and be like, okay... Like, if this is my score going into Final Jeopardy, if I bet, you know, X amount, that would up my chances by 20%. But if I lose that amount, it would decrease my chances by 25%. So maybe in that case, I stand Mm -hmm. pat. It gave me something to shoot for that I knew was, you know, 100% of the time, this score has always made it into the quarterfinals. So I knew going in, like, if when I needed to take big risks and when it would be okay to to bet lower. Uh, So that was, you know, again, for all I knew, like, this had been a record-setting tournament of champions and I wouldn't need it to go higher. For all I knew, everybody had bet all of their money and gotten Final Jeopardy wrong and all I needed to do was end with a dollar or more and I would make it, which has happened before. Somebody once made it into the second round with just a dollar. So it depends on what you're comfortable with. Everybody out there had a number in mind. It just depends on how confident did you want to be that you weren't going to get bumped off the bubble. Mm. And, you know, that's just up to, you know, who you are, what your risk tolerance is, or do you feel lucky? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what it really comes down to, because we we don't know. Yeah, so stepping back to your quarterfinal showing, you had a strong showing in that first round. You swept that Shakespeare category, did you not? Yeah, I did. That felt good. Uh, Shakespeare was what boned me over in my, my loss, my first go-round. I lost $5,800 on a Shakespeare category, so when I got home, Knowing I was coming back and knowing that Shakespeare comes up at least once every tournament, I was like, the bard is not going to beat me again. So I made those flashcards first. I studied them the longest. And when I saw that Shakespeare category, I was like, all right, I get a chance to redeem myself. I watched the whole tournament. I don't recall there being any other like traditional sweeps like that where everybody just pulled a category. I know like some people jump all over the board and they might have ended up mm-hmm. getting all the questions in a category, but not in a row. Was that like a, yeah. like, do you know, was yours like the only like true sweep in the tournament? There might've been a couple, like I think James might've gotten a couple that he bounced back and yeah, forth, yeah. but he ended up taking all of them. So I went into that category thinking, I knew that in the tournament, everybody was going to be hunting for the daily doubles because we had seen like how much success James had had maximizing mm-hmm. his score by hunting for them. And that, you know, a daily double is a huge, huge opportunity. Then one fell swoop, you can assure yourself a spot in the quarterfinals. So I went into the Shakespeare category initially thinking, okay, this is a likely spot where they're going to hide it. They tend to like to hide daily doubles under the more academic categories, not so much, you know, like movies or music, you know, current music or pop culture and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Sports, you're probably not going to find a daily double under. So I was like, all right, like Shakespeare, literature, like an established part of the canon, let's go there. And I got the first three right. And at that point, ego took over. 
And I was like, okay, I'm 90% sure that this daily double is not going to be under the two highest row Shakespeare clues, but damn it, I want that applause. (laughs) So like I just stuck with it out of like pure egotistical mania and spite. And and I got it. I got all five of them. I got that running the category applause and, you know, put me in a great position going into double jeopardy that I knew that even if I totally screwed up double jeopardy, I was still in a good, strong enough position that if I doubled up on final jeopardy, I'd be in. Yeah. Which it turned out was essentially what happened. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so thank you, William. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like you said, ultimately, by the time you you were in a good place at the end of first round, it was pretty much between yourself and Francois, who is the guy that won the teacher's teacher's tournament. And then Ryan. Francois with a dollar sign. Yeah. (laughs) F-R-A-N-C-O-I dollar sign. <laughs> and then uh, and then Ryan, who had a seven-day showing and won like over 150K, was basically out of it already by the end of first round. Yeah, and Ryan had, I like, I'm not going to pump myself up and say that like I was the toughest possible competition, but Ryan did get the worst possible draw. Like, I just want to shout him out a little because he's been living in Denmark. And that meant that by the time he got on for that Friday taping, he was one o'clock in the morning for him. So like playing Jeopardy is a difficult enough thing to do, even when you're like bright eyed and bushy tailed. But I could tell even in the green room that he was really hoping he was going to go early and he just, you know, bad luck. (laughs) Like he ended up in a position that was really, really tough for him to come out of. So it took him a long time to get his buzzer down and it took him a long time to really get rolling. But I think that all things considered, he did, you know, as well as anybody could do under those circumstances, especially with Francois, you know, sucking up all the money on the board. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I was in the lead in single Jeopardy, and Francois found the daily double in single Jeopardy and doubled up on it. Still had a slight advantage going into double Jeopardy. And then I just like, I was in the middle podium for the first time, and I, I don't want it to sound like I'm making excuses. I'm just like saying what, what yeah, happened. Yeah. I had always played in either the left podium, my first game, and then my every other game I was in the far right podium, which is where the returning champion mm-hmm. goes. So it was really easy for me to kind of block everything else out and just focus on those lights on the board to, you know, really make sure that I was getting in first. But being in the middle, I had people on either side of me, you know, like buzzing in or moving around and kind of drawing my eye. And I was just never able to really get the full focus that I felt like I had my first run on the show because I was always kind of peeking out of the corner of my eye, like, okay, like, are they buzzing in yet? Like, should I be buzzing in now? Am I too early? Am I too late? But I was looking more at them, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and that was a little bit of focus that I couldn't give to the board. Yeah. And it took me a long time into Double Jeopardy to really get that focus back to the point where I felt like I had my buzzer rhythm down. Yeah, that's fair. But meanwhile, like Francois is just, you know, cleaning it up. He found another daily double in Double Jeopardy and yes. you know, really put the game away with that one. He was he, like he like I saw a classic rock guitarist category and I was like, you know, thank yes, another one. Absolutely going to ask you about that. Cause I yeah. remember last time we talked, you, you said how uh, one of the reasons you got into Jeopardy was because of that rock and roll Jeopardy with Jeff Probst. Yep. So yep. I figured that you would have been excited when you saw that category pop up. So I was thrilled. I was like, yes, like this is for me. This is like why I started playing. Like this was when I first discovered I was good at Jeopardy. I've got the Rolling Stone encyclopedia of rock and roll right by my bed. There is a 100% chance that I'm going to know all of these classic rock guitarists. Yeah. Uh, the only problem was that I was going up against someone in Francois who had actually like seen yeah. a lot of these <laughs> classic rock guitarists play in person, yeah. which he was, we were talking about after we taped the episode. 
and he was just right there, you know, with him. Like he got three of them, I got two of them, yeah. but I was really expecting to come out with six thousand dollars from that category. Yeah. And I just kept going back to it. Like I was like, no, I like again, stubbornness and spite took over. <laughs> I was like, this is my category. I will get questions right in this category. Yeah. I mean, Francois had his moment as well because he had a physics category, I think, in his semifinal round. That, and he's a physics teacher, and he totally bombed that physics yep. category. <laughs> uh, well, so his semi his semifinal, he got physics for his final Jeopardy. It ended up being a physics oh, category. Right, it's a question. Yeah, 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 yeah. The category was Italian inventors, yeah, and it ended up being an Italian physicist. Yeah. So yeah, he nailed that one. Was it in the final then that he? Yeah, day one of the finals, yeah. there was there was a physics category, and <laughs> Francois, guy. being yeah, the wonderfully dry sense of humor that he has, he decided to avoid the physics category <laughs> just for the sake of a joke. But yeah, you know if. You can know all the answers, but if you're not getting in first on the buzzer, no one's ever going to know it. And like, just like me with classic rock guitarists, like that was right in his wheelhouse. But he had he had two folks on the buzzer that were just a little bit faster. Yeah, yeah. And then going back to to your quarterfinals uh, double Jeopardy round, mm-hmm. I got a little like music nerd boner when the last two categories were black holes and revelations, which is, which <laughs> yes. is the title of a muse of a great muse song. Yeah, yeah. They they edited my laughter out when they revealed those categories, but. <laughs> Apparently, I just attract those like the the writers having fun because my first episode there were three categories in a row that were tenth, doctor, and Alon Z. Right, right. And now I get black holes and revelation. Yeah. So I, yeah, I I get a kick out of when the writers have some fun with yeah. us. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, Francois really ran away with it in Double Jeopardy, and then he extended his lead with that Daily Double. You had a couple mm-hmm. wrong answers that set you back, but you're still well ahead of Ryan. But yeah, you nailed the final Jeopardy with that Jungle Book Shere yeah. Khan question. That was another stop on the uh, Stephen Gray Redemption Tour because <laughs> in my third game, final question was like children's literature. Right. And was it was asked, and the, right, yeah. the answer was Pinocchio. So I was like, all right, you know, here I am in the Tournament of Champions and here's another final Jeopardy. And it's a character from a, a book from the late 19th century that was later adapted to film by Disney. Mm-hmm. And like, what are the odds that I get two final Jeopardies that are like in that narrow a band? Yeah. And it just happened that like this one I was able to piece together. Like I had studied the Jungle Book. I knew it was late 1890s or I knew it was 1890s. And, you know, Khan, Genghis Khan, King yeah, yeah. just made that connection. And I was writing that, that answer down before Alex even finished reading the quiz. Nice. Like, I didn't know that I was right, but I at least knew that if I was wrong, I was confidently wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And then so because of that, you got your score high enough that uh, it allowed you to secure the, the not only one of those four wildcard spots in the semifinal round, but the highest of those spots. So how and, and they, they announced it in kind of a, a, a dramatic way where they announced like the three of the four people. And then Alex said, oh, we're missing one. And then that was. Yes. What point in that was it when when you figured out that you were number four and that, you know, what what were you feeling when you figured out you made the semis? So I my my target number going in had been seventeen thousand five hundred. Like that was the number that I knew I wanted to get. You were like right around there, weren't you? Yeah, I ended up at like eighteen six or so. I mean, ideally, I was going to be at seventeen five without having to bet all my money on Final Jeopardy. But failing that, it at least made my Final Jeopardy wager easy because I knew that, you know, a thousand probably wasn't going to get me in. So I may as well just bet it all and cover, you know, anybody, you know, like is this being a historically great quarterfinal round? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got it right. I knew that I had hit my number. And then they start showing the videos of the five winners and the four wild cards because on the media day, we all tape 
you know, kind of talking heads of us, like looking to the camera, saying our name and saying where we're from in case we qualify. Mm -hmm. But I had known from watching the show that in the event that there's a Friday qualifier, they don't show your video and Alex will do like a little dramatic, oh my goodness, but where's the fourth person? (laughs) So as soon as they didn't cut to a video of that fourth person, I knew that I was in. Nice. Uh, I actually had a good idea beforehand because after we had locked in our wagers, the stage manager came over to Francois and said, okay, Francois, like, unless you did something really stupid, you're going to win this game. And on the Friday game, the winner goes over and shakes hands with Alex because like, that's just how they do it on the Friday game. So like, here's when you're like, few is, here's where you're going to walk. Here's the mark that you need to hit. And then he walked over to the judges and talked to them for a few seconds and then walked back to Ryan and I. And he said, okay, if one of you two are the wild card, here's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, like, for all I know, there he says no that to everybody. Ryan was be. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you never know. I mean, if he doubles up to 8,000, like 8,000 has gotten yeah. in before. Yeah. So, but to me, that at least told me that I had made a bet that would put me in range. Because for all I know, he says that to every, you know, group who's in second or third in the case of a Friday runaway. Yeah. But the fact that he went to talk to the judges and then came back made me think that he was checking to see, like, if I was going to be in range. Mm. Like, if my wager would have put me in position to get a wild card. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I told myself it was true just for, <laughs> you know, a little bit of confidence boost because after the way that Francois steamrolled me in the second round, I really could have used a confidence boost right about that. <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah, they didn't cut to that fourth video of somebody from an earlier game and Alex said, oh, but that's only three. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so that was a load off of my mind. Like I was pretty confident I had done it, but you don't know until, you know, until you're shaking Alex's hand. Yeah. And what, what was that feeling like when you, you figured out that you got it and that got to go up and shake Alex's hand? It was just a, a sigh of relief. Yeah. Like, thank it. Like, I, uh, I, it wasn't a fluke. Like, I didn't, you know, like, that, that was my fear. Like, you know, I'd won five games and that kind of put me in the middle of the pack. But even still, I felt like I kind of brute forced my way those first five games or those first five wins just by being better on the buzzer, not necessarily by being smarter than the people I was up against. So this kind of, you know, solidified to me like, okay, like this wasn't my best game, but against tough competition and with the harder questions, I was still able to, you know, hold my own and, you know, qualify for the second round and do it as the top wild card, which was, you know, a nice bonus. I didn't know that until they told me afterwards, but it was kind of like, all right, you know, were it not for running into, you know, Francois, like I could have won one of these earlier games. Like I had outscored one of the winners. So that would have, you know, that was kind of it felt like I justified them inviting me back when I was able to pull that one off. So then, I mean, that's the end of the first day of taping, right? So after that, yeah, I I was the end of day one. So after that, we were, we were, we were free. We were unsequestered. I could finally go, (laughs) go relax and exhale and have some food that wasn't deli meats. Uh, Do something that wasn't off-brand Jenga. And what what did you do with your evening in between taping of the quarterfinals and semifinals? Went back to the hotel, had a drink to unwind, and then just kind of walked around Culver City a little bit. My wife, Kristen, has a family out in California, and they had a couple of places that they recommended to us in the area to go grab a bite to eat. So we went to a Cuban place. I had some garlic chicken and rice, which was delicious. And then back to the room to study, like hitting up some more flashcards. Every minute counted. And then woke up the next morning, got on the exercise bike in the hotel and did more flashcards for 45 minutes or an hour or so. (laughs) Uh, Just I had learned my first time around that I needed to kind of exhaust myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So I made sure that I was working out while I was there, that I was, you know, walking around a lot and making sure that I was good and tired by the time came to try and go to sleep. Because otherwise, I would have just been awake staring at the ceiling the whole night, and that would not have made day two very easy. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So then you were in the second round of the semifinals and you faced the infamous James Holtower and the one and only and his awkward pained smiles. <laughs> <laughs> and James had a historic run during regular season play. Was it 27, 28 days or something? I think like it was like 32 or something like that. Either. Wow. Uh, was that is that uh, your pupper chiming in? Yes, that that's Bogart. He uh, <laughs> he. I don't know what he wants, but he wants something. <laughs> Fair enough. So, what was your mindset going? No into respect that? for the art of podcast. <laughs> what was your mindset going into that uh, semifinal round? Did you have a partic- particular strategy in mind for going up against James? Yeah, going up against somebody like that kind of changes your strategy a bit, especially if you know it's not just a player with a great base of knowledge, but a player who aggressively hunts daily doubles, uses them to try and put the game away early. That meant that there was a much greater value on having control of the board than there might be in a game against folks who were just playing kind of traditional top-down Jeopardy. Because if I've got control of the board, that means that I get to pick the next clue, and that gives me a shot at finding a daily double. Mm -hmm. Uh, That means that I can go to a category that I may feel more comfortable with, that he might not be as comfortable with, that gives me a better shot of racking up a score before he can. Yeah. So that meant that I was going to be more inclined to guess. First time on the show, I didn't want to ring in unless I was like 99% confident that I had the right answer because nothing can screw you up quicker in Jeopardy than missing. <laughs> but against somebody who's going to try and you know use the daily doubles to put a stranglehold on the game, I knew that, that there was a higher expected value on a guess than there would be in a normal game. So that meant that it was worth you know taking a couple of shots that I might not have been 100% on. Right. Other than that, it was just you know like knowing the daily double heat map, knowing where they like to hide them, knowing what kinds of categories they like to hide them, and then getting control of the board and going for it. Unfortunately, James found the first daily double on the very first yeah. pick of the game, which yeah. means that it was physically impossible for me to find it. So all of that kind of went out the door immediately. Yeah, and he got a couple lucky breaks like that, but that one was really lucky for him. Yeah, because when, you know, I mean, him finding it on the first clue isn't the worst case scenario because that means he doesn't have a lot of money that he can put into it. You know, it it only becomes another $1,000 clue. But the problem is I knew that, like, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I knew that he had more knowledge than me and I had heard you know, heard about how fast he was on the buzzer. So I knew that unlike in the quarterfinal, where if I didn't find a daily double, it was okay, because I was still going to have more opportunities to build my score. In that situation, like just standing pat wasn't good enough. I needed to make moves that were actively going to increase my score. Mm -hmm. So, you know, him getting a thousand, yeah, that meant that he wasn't pulling away, but that meant that I wasn't gaining on him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a normal game, it wouldn't, it's good, but all like, it's not the worst thing, but it's far, far, far from the best thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, It's it's the second worst thing. (laughs) The worst thing is him doubling up to like 10,000 with it. And then the second worst thing is him finding it before I have a shot at getting at it. But with him in particular, I mean, it's just, it's just so unfortunate that he ended up with that like head start right off the bat, you know, because if anybody did not need it, it's him. (laughs) Yeah, well, the daily double is the great equalizer in Jeopardy. It's the way that an underdog can make a move and can really take advantage. If you're willing to bet big enough and if you can, you know, handle that kind of pressure. And I knew that whenever I found a daily double against him in whatever category, I was going to bet it whatever I had. Mm. You know, even if I was in the lead, I was going to have to try and salt it away because I knew that there was a chance that he would make, he could mount an enormous comeback. I'd seen him do it before. Yeah, he'd do his little awkward all in with pushing, like he's pulling his chips all in. 
He's got his signature yeah. move, you know, the Vegas gambler. He knows how to make a name for himself. Yeah. He even got a category named after him in one of the, the quarterfinal <laughs> matches. There was a, quarter, a category called All In. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's the writers having a little bit of fun again. Yeah. But yeah, I knew that my strategy against him was going to be definitely different than it was in the quarterfinals and probably different than it would have been against any other set of semifinalists. But, you know, that's the game. Like, yeah. that was that was where I ended up. I honestly didn't think I was going to get James in that game. I was I had thought that I was going to be up against Emma in that round, which, you know, is no picnic because Emma in my opinion is one of the top players to ever play Jeopardy. And she was the one that unseated him from She was. Emma was the one who uh, who beat James in what is statistically the single best game of Jeopardy ever played. Uh, there was only one missed question between all three players. Wow. Uh, which has never happened before. And yeah, and she, you know, she held her own with him. She maximized the daily doubles. Like she kind of gave the blueprint for how to beat him and totally unknowingly. It's his episodes hadn't started to air before she got on. Yeah. So, so she, she just went one. in yeah. and either she either had that strategy or she quickly realized that she was gonna need to adopt it. And, you know, she went out and she did it. Yeah. But yeah, so I knew that, you know, whoever I got in the semifinals, I knew I wasn't probably wasn't gonna get Francois again because we had played in the first round. So whether it was, you know, James or Emma or Rachel or Lindsay or Gilbert or Kyle, you know, I mean, we're all, we're all multi-game winners. Like we've all made it to the second round. We've all proven that we're smart enough. We've all proven that we're fast enough. You know, once you reach that point, there are no, you know, oh, I, I hope I get to go against this person. It's just, you know, I hope I get a good board. I hope that I do well enough to move on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew what my strategy was. And then like Mike Tyson once said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And <laughs> I got punched in the face with the very first clue. <laughs> so then it became, you know, just like playing Jeopardy. I didn't have to guess as much as I would otherwise would have because that expected value of an extra daily double was gone. Yeah. So it was, you know, stick to categories that I'm confident in, you know, buzz in first, only buzz in when I'm feeling good about it and, you know, hope that kind of the tougher board equalizes things. Yeah. Going back to about, you know, you being matched up against James, that's, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. all decided by the producers. There's no, like, you know, they don't pick randomly or they don't, like, mm -hmm. you know, go by scores, that kind of thing, do the matchups? Yeah, it's, they, in a normal Jeopardy game, they just draw names out of a hat. Mm -hmm. They did make it clear to us uh, at our orientation that the producers of the show select the pairings okay. uh, for Tournament of Champions, uh, quarterfinals and semifinals. And, you know, we kind of, we were all back there kind of doing like the, you know, the SAT logic game, like trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be up against who? Like, there were three people from Atlanta. So we figured, okay, they're going to keep us separate yeah. because they want to have the Atlanta market, which is one of Jeopardy's biggest markets, a reason to tune in at least three of the five nights. Yeah. There's four women. They're probably going to keep all four women separate so that they have a better chance of moving on to the semifinals and putting all of them in one game. Mm -hmm. We figured that James and Emma wouldn't be allowed to meet until the finals because they knew each other. They had played each other yeah, before. Yeah, they'd keep them away from yeah. each other. Yeah, they wouldn't put them up against each other in the quarters. Right. And so, um, you know, we think like we were able to kind of piece together i mean even just based on like what would make for good tv um my brother jokingly said that emma and i like are the same height and have the same hairstyle and dress alike <laughs> so they probably wouldn't put us against each other because that would just make for really awkward tv um <laughs> but so we were all just like trying to you know trying to figure it out as we were backstage and then on the second day it was like okay they're probably not going to repeat any of the first game pairing. So that means that I'm not going to go against Francois. That means that Lindsay's not going to go against James. That means that Kyle and Gilbert are probably going to be separate. So from there, we were trying to say like, okay, and if 
if we they stick to keeping Lindsay and Emma and Rachel all separate, and they're going to keep Drew and I separate because we're both from Atlanta, that mm. only left a couple of very, very specific options for them. Right, right. So we all had an inkling going in of who was going to be in what match. It was just a matter of, like, I knew that I was either going to draw James or Emma and likely either uh, Rachel or Kyle. So it was just, it just kind of depended on what the producers thought would make for the best TV. And apparently they thought that me going up against James in the second round would make for better TV than me going up against Emma. So, which isn't to say that it's the producer's fault that I didn't advance. I mean, like I said, Emma's one of the best Jeopardy players I've ever seen. She is by no means, you know, a pushover or an easy matchup. I mean, if, if her performance in this tournament didn't convince people of that, nothing I say is going to convince them of yeah. it. But, you know, like I said, at this point, there's no easy road through the semifinals. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, James did end up winning that episode in a runaway, meaning he'd, mm-hmm. he'd banked more than double any of the other contestants going into Final Jeopardy. So nobody could catch him, you know, doing what he did through his regular season play, his, his, oh, his yeah, strategy. Oh, yeah, he had a lot. Yeah. So do you remember the moment that you realized that James was going to run away with it and sort of what went through your head at that point? (laughs) The moment real, like it wasn't official at this point, but the moment where I really knew that I was good and screwed was when Rachel, the third person, our game found another daily double on the first clue of double jeopardy, which meant that two of the three daily doubles were gone before I like, it would be against the rules of the game for me to have been able to have found one of them because James got the first pick in the first round. Like it was given to him on the virtue of him having the highest score coming in. Mm. And Rachel had the first pick of the second round on the virtue of her having the lowest score of the three of us. And there I was in the middle. Like I had to watch two of the three, like two of my three chances to, you know, make that big move that I needed to make get sniped, you know, right out from under me. So at that point, I was like, all right. Like, this is, like, my odds of winning weren't great to begin with. Like, I think they were better than most. I think that James and I have, you know, I think that James is a better matchup for me than Francois was because Francois' strengths are my weaknesses Mm -hmm. and my strengths are Francois', you know, still pretty darn goods. Yeah. But I knew that, like, you know, one of James's strongest categories naturally sports, but I knew I could hold my own in sports. Like, I knew that whatever sports category, yeah. Like, I knew if a sports category came up, it was just going to be a matter of buzzer speed. For my first run, I knew that my buzzer speed was pretty good. Yeah. You know, I know that we're both good at history. I felt like I had an edge on him in literature. So I was happy to see a literature category come up in a double jeopardy. Unfortunately, one of the daily doubles wasn't behind that one. Yeah. But, like, I knew, like, regardless of, you know, who I thought was a good matchup, I knew that James is one of the best players ever. And if I'm going to, you know, have a chance, I need to be able to find one of those daily doubles. And with two of them gone, you know, my odds of finding them on a random pick went from 1 in 20 to 1 in 57. Right. So that's just not easy to pull off. Yeah. And then, like, it wasn't, a, like, there was one moment, like, there was a second where I had, where, like, I had the game in hand. And it was, it was right before James found the second daily double. I buzzed in first on a clue that, I had studied and I had kind of struggled with, but I was comfortable like with that daily double out there. I knew that I needed to take a guess. Like it was, I knew it was one of two cities mm-hmm. and I guessed the wrong city. James got it on the rebound. And then with the next pick in that category, he found the daily double. Right. If I'd gotten that clue, right. I pick that clue next. I find the daily double, which was an answer that I knew I double up. And then he and I are essentially even with no daily doubles left on the board. Right. So as it played out in a triple stumper, in all likelihood, he still would have had the lead. But on a final jeopardy, when nobody gets right, the person in second place has a big advantage. 
-hmm. Not that you know that everyone's going to get it wrong, but you know that you need to bet as though the leader will get it wrong and the leader needs to bet as though you will get it right. So for that split second between Alex saying my name and me saying the wrong answer on that $2,000 clue, I didn't know it at the time, but like I was in control of the game at that very specific moment. And then I just couldn't pull the right answer. Yeah. So after James found the daily double, I was like, all right, unless I run the rest of the board, this is probably over. As it turned out, I was close. Like if I had had a couple of answers go my way, it wouldn't have been a runaway. And then, you know, I don't know if I would have gotten that final Jeopardy right, honestly, because I knew that he had put it out of reach and I knew that I was going to write, you know, a message to the show with my final response there. Mm -hmm. So that's at least one thing I don't need to lose sleep over is that, oh no, like if I'd only kept it a couple thousand closer, I would have been able to win on that final Jeopardy with a double up. But because I honestly don't know if I would have gotten it right, I, I would have had a 50-50 shot at it. So yeah. I'm kind of thankful for that because I don't have to like live with that regret. I've already got, you know, this one big <laughs> you know, freaking you know, visions of Saint, of uh, the Virgin Mary and Fatima. I've got that to regret for the rest of my <laughs> life. Uh, so if you're listening to this, don't send me pictures of the Virgin Mary. I will not appreciate it. <laughs> I had enough people sending me Pinocchio jokes the first time around. Oh, uh, so all the things I just tweeted at you were bad. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. Uh, <laughs> bring it on. Bring it on. I've heard worse. All right. So, you know, like, you know, I mean, I was outplayed in that game. There's no question about it. If you look at how often James got in first and the amount that he was able to rack up even without that daily double. But the beauty of Jeopardy is like they do have those daily doubles, like final Jeopardy and daily doubles are a chance for people who get outplayed to kind of snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. You see it all the time in football or baseball, a team that gets outplayed for, you know, three and a half quarters or for eight innings, you know, ends up coming away with a win at the last second. I mean, it almost happened in the Georgia game earlier today. They damn near blew it against Auburn after outplaying them for the first three quarters. You know, like, I'm not going to sit here and say that I should have won, but I know that in a weird way, one of the probably top three Jeopardy players of all time was only one question better than me. And that's, that's at least a little bit comforting. Like, again, I know that I got outplayed, but I also know that I was that close to doing something pretty special. Yeah, I mean, you did better against James than dozens of other people did. So yeah, you know. I, I did, and he said he said that afterwards. He was like, you know, you kept that interesting for a lot longer than most people do. Yeah, which you know, like I appreciate that. And there have been a few people online that like noticed, like, no, Stephen had it. Stephen actually like that game wasn't as lopsided as it looked. Like Stephen was in that for you know longer than it appeared. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like you know, like breaking news. Stephen Grade says that he. Like, like deserves a rematch or he should have won that game like no i know that i got beat but i also know that i was really really close to beating him <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean look at you you faced stiff competition you faced one of the finalists in the quarterfinals yep. and then you faced the winner in the semifinals so you know you were yeah, you were yeah, me and, yeah. <laughs> me and Lindsay were the only two that had to do that she uh she made it through against james in the quarterfinals uh with a wild card and then she had to face francois in the semifinals yeah. so you know, like I said, no easy road. Like she and I, you know, there's no easy road, but she and I had an especially tough road going up against those two. Yeah. And against, you know, I mean, also, you know, like me, and up, me being up against Rachel and Ryan. I like, I'm sure that Rachel feels this way, but I bet she was just hoping that I would shut up and let her get some, some points to try and prevent <laughs> it from being a runaway. Yeah. Because it, at that point, like our only hope was like not working together, but this was something that I tried to pull in my last game the first time around. I knew that I was so far behind that the only way I was going to win was if it was a close game between the two of them and one of and they were trying they to both bet missed. each other. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I started like just not buzzing in unless nobody else was and like rooting for the person who was in second to try and make it close enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't expect like that goes against everything that you're supposed to do on Jeopardy, yeah. like letting the other people buzz in. But 
like I had prepared enough strategies that I knew in that situation, like my best path to victory is letting other people get questions right, as opposed to trying to get it right myself. So, you know, I don't fault Rachel for trying to, you know, rack up the biggest possible score that she could. Like, I'm sure that 99% of the people who've ever played Jeopardy would have done that. But as it turns out, her only shot was me claiming up and my only shot was her claiming up and neither of us, you know, it was the prisoner's dilemma. Neither yeah. of us were willing to cooperate. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So with that, you're out, I guess, before the, they filmed two episodes before lunch and three after? Is that how they uh, No, we did, we did all the semifinals before lunch okay. and then the finals after, after lunch. Okay. So I got, and for this, we all got to watch because there were no wild cards involved. Right. So I Didn't got matter. to sit there and watch, you know, Emma and Kyle duke it out and you know, Drew's, you know, amazing message to Alex yeah. <laughs> that rightfully has gone viral and led to Drew taking over the world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then I got to play my game and then just go back in the stands and you like, you know, join the peanut gallery. And at that point, like all the pressure was off and I could finally like relax for the first time since January. And then it was just fun. Yeah. Like we were like whispering amongst ourselves, then like mystery fan, science right? theater 3000, yeah. like the, the Jeopardy game that was happening in front of, in front of us yeah. being like, Oh, I wish I had gotten that question. <laughs> oh, why isn't this board mine? Or, Oh my gosh, I can't believe they thought that that was a hard enough question to be in this situation. Yeah. Like just, you know, kind of having fun. Like it was like being on the couch at home, just having a good time with like all of, you know, surrounded by my new friends. Yeah. And then uh, we hung out and had lunch together and then got to come back and watch like a pretty epic final. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. that was that came down to the very last clue. That was it, the two single highest scores in Tournament of Champions history were first and second in this Tournament of Champions. Yeah. You know, against anybody else, Emma's got another hundred fifty thousand dollars, and she just had the misfortune of being up against James. <laughs> so, looking at that field going into that final with Francois, James, and mm-hmm. Emma, did you have a thought about how you thought that that was going to go? It was tough to say. Like, I mean. James is, of course, the prohibitive favorite in, you know, any game that he's playing that isn't against, like, Ken Jennings or Brad Rutter or, like, you know, somebody who's on that, you know, yeah, A-plus yeah, yeah. God-level God Jeopardy player. <laughs> but Emma had, you know, shown that she's got the buzzer speed and she's got the smarts and she's got the courage to bet big to hang with him and to, to get a win off of him. And Francois, like, having gone up against him, you know, I knew that Francois was, you know, formidable on the buzzer, and I knew that he had a very, very broad base of knowledge, especially in stuff that Jeopardy likes to go back to in these finals. You know, uh, wordplay, science, like stuff that not every Jeopardy player is, you know, really well versed in. So the chances were always there of somebody pulling the upset, and especially with the two-day thing, with the points from day one right. and day two of the finals being combined, it takes a pretty impressive effort to salt that one away early. Yeah. And with two players like Emma and Francois going at it, you know, James didn't have an easy go of it either. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, it came down to that last final Jeopardy clue. Like James missed a daily double in the first final game, and he missed a daily double in the second final game. I think that's more daily doubles than... Yeah, he lost a lot in that, that uh, first one. Yeah, yeah, he was... He was or, no, the second game. Yeah, the game, second game, he was... Yeah, yeah, that second one. It's about the, a question about the Hyatt Regency in Atlanta. That's like a, yeah, my Dragon Con hotel. Like what, I knew, yeah, I, I was like, I know Stephen would have gotten yeah, that. Yeah, me and the other two guys <laughs> from Atlanta were like, oh no, yeah. why? Why did we miss that one? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like he, like that was his shot to salt the game away because Emma had just doubled up on on a daily double a few clues earlier. So we knew that like, okay, this is a game. And then James finds that one. We're like, oh, okay, I guess he's going to lock it up. And then he misses. And like, with the exception of the James supporter section in the audience, you can kind of feel the, feel this ripple of excitement going through. It's like, oh my gosh, like this is coming down to the wire. Yeah. You know, it made for a really, really exciting finish and just an outstanding, outstanding game uh, between the two of them. And, you know, 
like poor Francois, like he kind of got swallowed up in them, but like yeah. anybody would. Like you put, it's going to be tough for anybody to get in against those two, especially in a tournament and champion situation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he said Emma really did come within striking distance of James. She gave him a, a solid run for his money for sure. Oh yeah, I mean, it, if James doesn't come up with that last final Jeopardy, then Emma's the winner. Like that's all you can ask for, you know, to be in a situation where you've got an opportunity to win it going into that last yeah. question. And yeah. and she did. You know, no, yeah. I mean, depending on how you look at it, like I made a joke of this, but it was like she took that second game off of him just on points. It was almost like uh, Ireland wins, but Crum catches the snitch. Like, yeah, he got yeah. he got the win. But there were a lot of people saying that her first one over him was a fluke. And she came back in this game in the highest pressure situation possible. And was like, no, I can take it to him more than once. So I, I felt really good for her. I felt like she had more pressure on her than anybody else in our tournament, possibly in any tournament ever, just because they broke precedent to get her into the tournament. And there were a lot of people who didn't like her to begin with because she was the one who unseated James. She had less time to prepare than the rest of us because we all knew that we were going to be in, but she figured I only won three games. Why would I start studying again? And to perform at that level is just astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's see. So, and you mentioned a little bit a little while ago about the difficulty of the questions in the tournament. I at least felt like the difficulty was stepped up, especially in certain categories for the tournament of champions. For me, the one that really, like, I was like, I don't know how I would be able to do this this quickly was the initials to Roman numerals <laughs> to, to numbers yep. question that, category. That, yeah, that is a Jeopardy tournament, like, standard. If you, if you go into a Jeopardy tournament of champions or like a super tournament you know that you're going to get before during and after you yeah, know that you're going to get you know like hard crossword clues you know that you're going to get initials to you know numbers to initial or, you know whatever <laughs> whatever it is that yeah, yeah. roman numeral one that i can't even say let alone succeed at. <laughs> uh those are just like some jeopardy staples and they're they're going to show up and you it's really hard to prepare for those because they draw on such varied portions of knowledge you know like yeah. you, you get a clue that the answer is fear the walking dead man's hand sanitizer. Like, <laughs> you can't study for that. Like you just have yeah. to come up with that in the moment or, um, you know, taking, you know, the father and little house on the prairies initials and turning them into Roman numerals and turning them into numbers. Like either yeah. you got that or you don't. And that's just, yeah. that's not necessarily testing knowledge. That's testing quickness. And that's mm-hmm. something that the Jeopardy writers like to do. But it was yeah. it was the same logic that led me to studying Shakespeare. I knew that he was coming up in one of those 10 matches. And if it was going to be one of mine, I wanted to be ready for him. Yeah. But the one that really got me, which I think is the, mo- the single most diabolical category in Jeopardy history, was the one called Jeopardy Keywords Not. Yeah, I... I, I never really figured out what was going on with that category. So, so the joke on that category was amongst Jeopardy fans, there are these things called pavlogs, which are on the show. If you see a certain series of words or a certain description, it leads you to a single answer every single time. So like, for example, if you see Norwegian playwright, there are many Norwegian playwrights, but the only Norwegian playwright that Jeopardy ever asks about is, is Ibsen. So if you okay. see that, if you see those two words, it doesn't matter what the rest of the category is. If you see Norwegian playwright, you got to buzz in and say it. Yeah. So what that category did was it took those key phrases and those key descriptions and it used them to confuse you and point you towards the wrong answer. Okay. So for example, 
John Adams' nickname is the Duke of Braintree. So one of the clues had this was like this Duke of Braintree wasn't president, but was president of the Continental Congress. So if you see Duke of Braintree and you stop there, you're going to say John Adams. But if you keep reading the rest of the clue, you're going to know it's John Hancock. John Philip Seuss's nickname is the March King. And there was a category about the March King who wrote Pomp and Circumstance. Well, that's Elgar. That's not Sousa. So it was forcing everyone to deprogram their brains in a split second. Like, forget everything you've learned about, because everybody, Mm -hmm. if you're going on Jeopardy, you study your Pavlovs. Pavlovs were essentially the only thing that I studied going in there. Like, granted, I made about 40,000 of them, (laughs) which is far more than, you know, the average person knows. But those were the big ones, like Paul McCartney Band. Like, if I say Paul McCartney Band, you're saying the Beatles. But if you see Band on the Run, like, you got to get past that and you got to know that it's Wings. So that was them saying like, okay, we know how you studied. Now we're going to test how much you're paying attention. Yeah. And I would have gotten destroyed on that category <laughs> if I had gotten it. Wow. I like it, it took me probably until the fourth clue in the category to realize what exactly was going on. I was like, wait a second, the dairy state is in California. It's, it's Wisconsin. What is happening here? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. read the whole clue, idiot. Yeah, that one was, wow. So that one was like there for like the deep cut, like serious Jeopardy yeah. fans kind of thing. Yeah. Or they had another category called It's Not Australia. And Australia is the uh, single most given answer in Jeopardy history. (laughs) So just saying like, it's not Australia is kind of a wink saying like, we know that if you're in the Tournament of Champions, you probably know your Jeopardy minutia and we're going to mess around with you. (laughs) Nice. And all the the, uh, answers in that Not Australia category started with A and ended with A. So again, they're priming you to give one answer, but then challenging you to kind of deprime yourself and come up with the right. Yeah, <laughs> they get to have some fun with the tournament of champions. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. I that's that's so cool. I didn't realize that it was you know sort of an in joke like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Or uh, Alex saying genre. You yes. know, like that is that is a Jeopardy standard, and they made sure to throw in plenty of genres <laughs> for us. Yeah, to, that whole category. Yeah, you can hear us in the audience and you can see people on the podium. Like every time Alex says it, we're going to laugh at it because it's just, it's one of those things. It's like, it's him playing the hits. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of the hits, I mean, you already mentioned that the moment from the tournament that really went viral, which was Drew's final Jeopardy response of We Heart You, Alex, as because the contestants had learned with, during or before the tournament that Alex was going back into treatment for pancreatic cancer. Is that right? Yes, he actually uh, came by the green room the day that we were there filming our commercials and doing our media uh, before the tournament started. And he just, you know, kind of gave us a pep talk, you know, you've already made it this far. Like this isn't about the money. You've all already made life changing amounts of money. Like this is about going out, you know, performing your best, having a good time with it and enjoying this experience. And then one of us asked, you know, like, how's it, how are you doing? And he said, well, I thought I was doing better. My numbers have gone back up. I'm going back into chemotherapy. I'm going to make the announcement, you know, later today and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, and, but even before that, uh, Larry Martin, who was the 2018 teachers tournament champion, which meant that he would have had a bid in this tournament of champions, mm-hmm. uh, passed away from pancreatic cancer back right. in January. So kind of that double whammy of Larry's passing, who would have been one of us and knowing that Alex is struggling with this disease. Gilbert Collins, one of the finalists, uh, one of the Tournament of Champions competitors, had organized all of us to wear purple ribbons while we were on the show. He had cleared it with Larry's family. He had cleared it with the folks at the show. He brought them all out for us. So we were all wearing those kind of in support of Alex and in memory of Larry while we were out there. And then Drew, in his semifinal match, he was locked out. He knew that he wasn't going to win even if the other two both missed. So 
he took that opportunity to, as he put it, express what we were all feeling because like we were all thinking of Alex the whole time. Like we knew that this was going to be, you know, a very special tournament and it was going to be a memorable tournament. And we, we didn't intentionally do this, I don't think, but I think that by the end we turned it into kind of a celebration of Alex between Drew's message, between the ribbons, between Gilbert getting to talk to Alex about coordinating the ribbons and, you know, why we did it and how much it meant to all of us during his semifinal match. You know, everything like that, it all just kind of crystallized in that response that Drew gave, which is, you know, far and away the single greatest answer in Jeopardy history. I mean, <laughs> they, it wasn't the right answer, but it was the best answer. Like, I couldn't tell you, you know, how Brad Rutter won a million dollars, like what final Jeopardy answer that was, or what answer Ken Jennings gave mm-hmm. that, you know, set the all-time games one streak. But everyone is always going to remember, like, Drew getting that answer wrong. And that is, like, you could hear the gasps throughout the crowd. One of the Jeopardy staffers leaned over to me and said, like, I've never seen Alex react like that to anything. Yeah. So, like, even in that moment, like, we knew that it was, like, it was something truly, truly special. And then Alex, being the consummate pro that he is, turns around and dings Drew for 1995 <laughs> of his dollars because while that may be the best answer, it was not the correct answer. It was still wrong. <laughs> so, and then, like, we all knew that moment was coming. And we all knew, like, you know, how, like, just kind of the air around the tournament and the gravity of all of, of the whole situation. So we, we took it upon ourselves to organize this play-along fundraiser that we did on Thursday and Friday night, where we, like, I put out a post on Twitter when the tournament was starting, and some former Jeopardy champs and, you know, all-stars and big names in the community helped, and the Jeopardy uh, social media folks helped to spread the word that we wanted folks to watch the tournament finals and count their number of correct responses and donate $1 for each correct response to the Lustgarten Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research. Mm-hmm. And in the first week of the tournament, like it got some good traction. Like it was getting, you know, like a good number of retweets, a good number of, you know, like people spreading the word. And then when Drew gave that answer, like it just took off. Like my phone was buzzing nonstop. Uh, I had to turn my notifications off because I like my my phone is on its last legs already, and getting this much activity just about knocked it on. Sack. I think you can afford a new phone. Yeah, yes, that some of that ten thousand dollars definitely needs to go there. No, it's more stubbornness than anything. I don't want to. I don't want to have to start dealing with dongles to fit in the uh, light. Fair I'm enough. Mad at ten foot more than yeah. anything. So that was on Monday, and then the last five days of the tournament, like it just it went huge. Like Drew's on the Ellen Show, and I'm getting interviewed by USA Today, and like. Local news affiliates from all around the country are like, you know, hitting me up, asking me for interviews. Like, and, you know, Drew is like, Drew's got, I don't know how many thousand of Twitter followers now when he was like some Brown University student with who's like followed by 20 of his friends on Twitter. And now he's like a personality. Like, it just, it completely changed the complexion of like what we were able to do with this tournament. So, me and a bunch of the other folks were just, instead of like getting excited to watch the games, we spent the last few days online, like reaching out to every verified person who had retweeted the, we love you, Alex hashtag, everybody with several thousand followers and just being like, Hey, like, here's a way that you can support Alex. Like, can you help us spread the word about this? And we're getting like these huge, huge names to start retweeting us. Like, you know, New York times, bestselling authors and Meredith Vieira is out here retweeting me and Kim Jong from the mass singer and community is retweeting (laughs) me. And like, all of these, like it's talk, they're talking about it on Good Morning America. Like Drew's on Ellen getting a twenty-five thousand dollar check going to this foundation, like because Drew made this moment happen, and because we were just fortunate enough to be planning to do something uh, to try and you know 
you know, raise awareness and raise funds and do everything that we could. And I, I haven't checked in the past couple hours, but last I looked, they were up to about $50,000 in donations. Nice. And, you know, for this Jeopardy specific, you know, link that they opened. And I w- I've been talking to the folks at the foundation, and I guess this like might be breaking news depending on when you put it out, the podcast gets uploaded, but they're going to keep that link up through the end of the year. So if there are people listening who didn't know about the fundraiser or who got their butt kicked a little bit by the Tournament of Champions finals and maybe we're hoping to get a few more right and donate a little bit more, like pick a night and play along, you know, pick several nights and play along, donate a dollar for every correct answer you give in one episode, donate a dime for every correct answer you give for every episode from now until the end of the year. Just donate a number that's important to you, uh, donate a number that you can afford to donate. But this foundation is doing incredible, incredible work, you know, trying to bring us closer to not just a cure for pancreatic cancer, but early detection, because the problem with it is that it's so hard to identify at a point where it is still treatable, that usually by the time you know you have it, it's already in, you know, a very advanced stage. And the fact that we were able to turn our time on the show into something that special, you know, doing this because of Alex and because of Larry and in, in honor of them is it's more than I ever thought I'd get out of, you know, of time on, on a game show, like more than, more than the money, more than the correct answers, more than, you know, being there to see that big epic finish. Like that's going to be my lasting memory of this. You know, I said it on Facebook, I think, but like the day that I lost in the Jeopardy tournament of champions ended up being one of the best days of my life because I knew that I was doing something important with it. And I never would have guessed that that would have happened. And that's, that's all up to Drew. Like, you know, I mean, it's up to Drew for making it happen, but it's up to Alex for being the type of person who would inspire Drew to make that happen. Yeah. And it, it just turned into something, you know, just more gargantuan than I ever could have hoped yeah. for. Yeah, that was fantastic. It was really, really cool to see. You'll have to make sure that I have that link. I, you, it, that link's on your Facebook, right? I can get it off so I can send it out with the episode yeah, uh, for our meager yeah, audience. To... <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll send you the, there's an updated okay. one. Like now that they made like the specific awesome. page for us, I'll make sure that you get that because it's one like, I, I'm an annoying pop-up ad on a website now. Like you, you go to their website and it says like Stephen Grade has issued a challenge. I'm like, great, but yeah. So I can get you that that dedicated donation link, and you can you know leave a message to Alex or to anyone who you know who has suffered or is suffering through pancreatic cancer. I was going through earlier today reading those messages, and it's it is just overwhelming. Like I never would have thought that anything that I ever did could have possibly inspired folks to be you know pouring their hearts out and you know, donating so much money and like, okay, I don't want to say me, I'm not taking full credit <laughs> for it. So we stole the idea from some folks who did it back in March, some former Jeopardy champs when Alex first announced his diagnosis, like they were the ones who came up with the idea for the play along. And Drew Gilbert's the one that, you know, got the ball rolling on the ribbons and Drew is the one who, you know, really, really made this into something spectacular with that message. Team effort. Yeah, like it was all of us. Like we were we were all out there drumming up support online. It just happened to be that like I was the one who tweeted it out mm. initially. Like that that was like it happened to be my phone that gets blown up. So now I'm the one who's getting, you know, all these interview requests <laughs> and, you know, like kind of having to having to become the team spokesperson in a way. But like it's it's just been truly, truly incredible to have my name associated with something like that in any way is more than I ever would have thought that my time on Jeopardy could lead to. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that moment with Drew and everything that spun out of it was obviously like the major one that really went viral. Do you have any sort of more, any personal favorite moments from the tournament overall that you want to tell our listeners about, discuss? (laughs) 
Uh, let me think. Well, I mean, for me, running the Shakespeare category was pretty awesome. It was. Because <laughs> uh, that was just like, you know, like, fuck you, Bill Shakespeare. I can do this. <laughs> Uh, and I can finally show my face at the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern again without uh, without <laughs> like feeling a sense of overwhelming shame. What were some other good ones? Like I got a question right about the 1972 Miami Dolphins, and uh, <laughs> my dad grew up in Miami Beach in the 70s, so I kind of felt like that was a little shout out to him. Nice. You look you looked pretty pleased with yourself when you got that answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you can tell on my face there were a couple of answers that I was especially chuffed to give. Yeah, there was one in that same episode. Like coincidentally, I gave a response of stealing signs, mm-hmm. and that was the same day that the big story about the Astros stealing signs broke. It, stealing signs in the 2017 World Series broke. So because of that, I ended up on the intro to Sports Center oh, okay. saying, what is stealing signs? <laughs> like a six-year-old me who dreamed of being a pro athlete never would have thought he got on Sports Center and in Sports Illustrated like that. But I did get onto Sports Center and into Sports Illustrated. God, what were some other good ones? Oh, this was another one. I know you can see how happy I was to say it. In my semifinal, one of the answers I gave was Wuthering Heights, mm-hmm. which is one of Alex's favorite books and movies. And even though like I wasn't giving that as a shout out to him like Drew was, you know, like specifically to him, I was still happy that I got to give an answer that I knew was meaningful to him personally. Even yeah. if like the sentiment, you know, the situation wasn't the same. Like I w- I still knew like, you know, that, that was kind of like my this one's for Alex moment. Right, right. But I mean, there, there's a whole host of them, like for good and for bad. You know, like there were always questions that we've been talking about in the months since we taped. Like we've all got a question that we wish we had gotten in that situation. Yeah. Because we know that like we would have nailed it. Like that was the one that was meant for us. The like, Hyatt Regency. Yeah, the Hyatt Regency for me. Uh, Shere Khan for Josh. <laughs> Hiroshima Monomore for Lindsay. Like, we've all got this question that we know was, like, built for us. And if things had gone a little bit differently, like, (laughs) we would have gotten to, you know, to give that response. Like, I was lucky that I came away with, like, a few that were personal, like, you know, important to me, you know, for various reasons. But honestly, like, one one of the most exciting ones was, I mentioned it before, Emma's Daily Double on that question about the Hurt Locker last night. Because that Mm -hmm. was the moment that, like, that was, like, the grand slam to try to That made it a game. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can tell watching that she didn't know it when the question was asked. And it just, like, she managed Popped to pull in. that out of nowhere in that yeah. moment. And then, like, they probably edited it out, but I'm sure that there were some cheers from the audience because we were just so excited that, like, we were going to get to, you know, like, see this one come down to the wire. It was just such a, such a cool moment to be there to experience. And, like, every moment was a cool one to experience in person from – you know, from the first, well, the first question that I got to see, because I was stuck in the green room the whole time on that first day. <laughs> but like from the beginning to the end, it was such a fun experience. It Like the level of the play is ridiculously high. Like I know I'm probably biased, but having studied like all, like the entirety of Jeopardy history over the past, you know, eight months, I feel pretty confident in saying that this was, if not one of the hardest tournaments they've ever, if not the hardest, certainly one of the hardest. There were a couple of games in this tournament that I would put up against any set of questions that they've ever had and, you know, challenge the best Jeopardy players of all time to see how they can do on them because they they really went all out on us. And if you look at the stats, if you look at the numbers, the number of daily doubles that were answered correctly, the number of final Jeopardies that were answered correctly, like we did a really strong job with that. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that as a fan of the show, like, everyone out there put like brought their a game and put on a really, really great show for the folks because this, like this is a caliber of play that you just don't get to see every day. Even taking James and Emma aside, 
like there was just some great, great stuff going on in this tournament. And I was, I was, you know, pacing around my house like a madman just watching it, even <laughs> though I knew how it played out just because like, I was so excited to see all of these people who are now my friends, like, you know, doing so well. And I was so, you know, upset knowing, you know, how it was going to end for some of them. But like, wow, like what a show. Like we, we really did a number on those boards. It was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun to watch. The last thing that I have to say is that uh, when you were giving your your uh, little personal information on your semifinal episode, <laughs> you you mentioned our planned New Zealand trip in uh, December 2021, and I was like, oh, that's great. He mentioned it again. You know, he talked about like you know some yeah. some Tolkien stuff that Im- that involves us again. One thing, it's not next year. It's it's 2021 because that's the December 2021 is yes. the the 20th anniversary of Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> Just want to make sure you don't end up there yeah, no, next I, year when I, when I, nobody else is there. It. I have not booked it. But, you know, time becomes weird on Jeopardy. Like, <laughs> I'm taping it in September. Everyone else is watching it in November. But I'm talking about something that's taking place two years into the future. And it's just all yeah. very wibbly wobbly time. Yeah. But then that was the episode where you did get knocked out of the tournament. So on the pad yeah. podcast, I am officially banning you from yes. mentioning any Tolkien activities that involve Alicia or I yeah, going for it on, on any <laughs> game show of any kind, because it's clearly a jinx because it was the episode where you mentioned our Middle Earth movie marathon yep. and the year that you won that was the end of your original run on Jeopardy. So yep, we can't so. do that anymore. Wait, is this where I find out that knowing you is ruining my life? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's knowing me and talking talking about Lord of the Rings. So as long as we're not talking about a Lord of the Rings movie, you're okay. Well, I never talk about Lord of the Rings. I hate that shit. Okay, so you're good. I'm good. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so like next time, like next time I'm on a game show and if they want fun facts, I'm like, I have a dog. I like (laughs) and I like movies. Uh, And they'll probably say, what's your favorite movie? And I'll be like, oh no. (laughs) I can't say. (laughs) Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, there you go. That's that's a, good that's answer a better answer well. than what you're I'm just gonna throw that no, out there. It's, Sorry, it's Raiders. It's Raiders. Yeah, <laughs> Raiders yeah that's is right. one. There you go. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have anything further to add that we haven't already covered regarding your your Jeopardy run? No, like it was it was a lot of fun. Like here's hoping they do another Ultimate Tournament of Champions for the show's 40th anniversary because I'm gonna keep on hitting <laughs> those flashcards just in case. I don't want to let my shot pass me by. But you know, in all likelihood, like only 1% of the people on the show get to come back for a second time and only like one or two of those, you know, people every couple of cycles get to come back to do it again. So odds are that was my last time on Jeopardy, but like what, what a, you know, 10 months now it has been like from the day that I got the call to, you know, here kind of doing all the postmortems about it. Like it has just been so much fun. I, I would go out and do it again. If you if you sent me out there and told me, okay, we'll let you on Jeopardy again, but you you are guaranteed to lose, I'd be like, okay, like let's just go do it again. Like this, is, it's just so great. I'm so so lucky. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, we can move into our final segment, which is Geek Cred, which where each of us will sort of recommend something that uh, we've been grooving on, digging on lately. So let's go to. Mark first. Mark, what are you giving your geek cred to this week? Uh, the Mandalorian. I mean, we're just going to say The Mandalorian? <laughs> no, actually, I watched, I caught up to a bunch of stuff, and like Rick and Morty was good this week, but the last episode of Short Trek uh, that's going to feature the Enterprise Ooh, came out this week. So the last nine minutes that features Anson Mount and uh, Rebecca Romaine and Ethan Hunt playing and those the, characters. Ethan Peck. Oh, Ethan Peck, sorry. Oh, I always see Ethan Peck. <laughs> that's not, Mission not Impossible. Possible. Yeah, yeah, Mission Impossible. Yeah, Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> sorry, I watched that movie again this week. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but the, so the last episode of that came out this week and was really good too and i'm just like just give me that show please because if i get the mandalorian in this like i'm getting that show 
give me the other show I want in the sci-fi franchise that I love. Yeah. Give me that show, please. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so go check out those Short Trek episodes. Those are uh, those are really good. Lots of sci-fi to watch right now. Like, lots of good shit. Yeah, going on. yeah I'll have to catch up on those Short Trek episodes. Yeah. Steven, how about you? What do you want to give your geek cred to to our listeners? Uh, well, now that now that I'm finally getting caught up on stuff, like Watchmen has been blowing my mind. Like, it is, I, I had never read the comic before, and I'm just reading that now. Like, I had absorbed enough of it just through pop cultural osmosis to, you know, understand what was going on. But, like, it's it's the new version of Lost that I was never expecting. Like, there's, there, it's so Damon lindelof and he is just such a good fit for, like, that source material, whether it's, you know, like, the supplemental material online being similar to, like, Tales of the Black Freighter and the difference, you know, under the hood that was in the comic, whether it's, you know, mysterious characters with, whose backstory slowly gets doled out, you know, connections to family from years past. It's just dealing with so many themes that he has touched on before in his work and updating it in a way that makes it feel, you know, very, very modern without, you know, winking and nudging and nudging you in the ribs and hitting you over the head with it. Like it's very much about, it's, it's become not as much about, you know, what it was about when it first came out, but he's done a, he and his team have done a wonderful job of updating it to the current day. And the soundtrack is incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Trent Reznor's doing. Yeah. I never listened to nine inch nails much, but, um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are just absolutely crushing it. Like that, if if that soundtrack had come out when I was still studying 14 hours a day, that would have been a heavy, heavy rotation, <laughs> which is about the highest praise that I can give a piece of music. I'm going to be, you know, trying to get a hold of that uh, those uh, triple the uh, triple LP that they're putting out of it because that is that is worth a listen. Absolutely, uh, streaming on Spotify now. Uh, if you're just looking for kind of good, you know, like synthy, atmospheric, just like good music, kind of. I don't know, like do anything to really like it can get you going if you're exercising. It's good to just kind of have in the background ambient music if you're studying or reading, like uh, give it a whirl. Yeah. Yeah. I had it on while I was drawing this week and it's uh, it's pretty good. I'm a big trend fan, though. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I never listened to like Nine Inch Nails a lot, but Social Network and Gone Girl were each like two of my favorite scores of their respective years. And now this is, you know, just absolutely blowing my mind. I'm going to make a recommendation for you then. He put out a weird thing called ghosts it's called ghosts one through four and okay. it's just all ambient and it's all under the nine inch nails banner it came out okay. in like 2006 2007 i think i remember hearing about that yeah it's about 40 tracks worth of stuff and it's all ambient kind of nine inch nails ambient stuff and it's great so Very cool. if you like the score stuff i would go i always recommend everybody go check out ghosts if they like the score stuff that him and atticus ross are doing so yeah will do yeah and regina king and jeremy irons both are fucking killing it on that show yeah every time jeremy irons comes on the screen and and then yeah. like hong chow like her getting introduced in this newest episode was like okay like here's another person who's bringing the same kind yeah. of electric a little bit chaotic a little bit mysterious energy uh gene smart like her playing laurie is you know exactly what oh, i would yeah. expect a jaded ex superhero to to be like like it's it's great and i'm sure that there's you know like more surprises more great actors more perfect little bits of characterization to come so i, I i've been loving Watchmen as well my geek cred for this week is dr sleep i went and saw it last weekend for it was almost mine. yeah anybody that's not aware I, I saw it with steven and his wife Kristen last weekend and that movie i had i i wasn't really sure what to expect of it going into it but it was better than it had any right to be it was it had just the right of homage to the shining ewan mcgregor was fantastic in it but it still sort of set itself apart and was kind of its own thing but you know it wasn't just like 
it wasn't like a straight just like sequel to the shining it had its own story to tell it added some really interesting new elements to kind of that that world and stuff and so i was very happy with that movie so and and unfortunately apparently it hasn't done very well at the box office no i was just gonna say it was doing pretty poorly i guess i imagine the same reason like I didn't go see it for the exactly the same reason. I feel like it's probably not doing well. Is it why they released after a Halloween? horror movie that came? Like, out. Why yeah. the, it's a horror movie that came out? Fuck! After did Halloween. you release that in November, guys? That was yeah. a terrible idea. Even if it had come out like October, yeah. I guess that would have been the twenty fifth or whatever, like right before. Yeah, I would have gone to see it that week because I would have been in the mood. But it came out like a week after Halloween. Yeah. Why? Why? I'll watch that was not not great timing but uh yeah so so if you do you know if you are interested in seeing it I encourage you to go out and see it it soon because it's probably not going to be in in theaters for much longer I mean it was really really well made it's Mike Flanagan who also did like uh Oculus and Absentia and he did the uh Haunting of Hill House oh that's um, right that's the guy who did that was the Haunting of Hill House guy he's pretty good at this stuff I like that Haunting on Hill House did you ever watch that eh didn't he do a Gerald's game on Netflix also? Yeah. 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 Gerald's game, uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Oh, wait, he did the Gerald's game adaptation with, because uh, that had the other Captain Pike and Carla Gugino, which was really good as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Cool. So that this, it's not, not even his first time adapting Stephen King. Nope. So there you go. Yeah. And so, he seems like yeah. he really gets King because like the, the parts of the movie that feel like Stephen King material are far and away my favorite parts like Mm -hmm. it seems like he made a much more conscious effort to make this a sequel to stephen king's the shining as opposed to stanley kubrick's the shining at least to the extent that you can without you know accepting that if this is following you know the path that kubrick set like the you know dick halloran is dead and the overlook is still standing but in terms of Mm -hmm. the thematic material of the book and how how king tends to handle um you know characterization and uh, certain ideas and that run throughout his novels this seems as much as it can as a a piece with his writing as it possibly could given the existence of the movie version cool yeah nice yeah so go see dr sleep so with that we will thank everybody for listening and thanks Stephen, for coming back and talking about his experience in the jeopardy tournament of champions of course happy to pinch it whenever you need me (laughs) <laughs> so th- and thank you to our listeners if you like what you heard tonight and you want to talk to us about jeopardy about any of the stuff that we talked about tonight mandalorian or dr sleep or whatever you can get at us on facebook we are at facebook.com slash dance robot dance podcast you can follow us on twitter at drd underscore podcast you can email us at dance robot dance podcast at gmail.com and if you are not already you can subscribe to our podcast on google podcasts on apple podcast podcasts on spotify on stitcher and basically anywhere that podcasts can be caught so with that thank you all for listening say good night mark have a good one guys i'll see you guys next week and say good night steven night everybody thanks for having me back and i'm tim thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week do, do, do. i think that's how i fucking tag the last one too <laughs> yeah. i got nothing get, i got nothing that's all you need suit, I, I laid it all on the table suit, suit, suit. <laughs>